0: Roll podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Roll On. We've got a great show on tap. Adam is warming up right now in the green room. So while the diva prepares, I say in jest, of course, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by Momentus. from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com/richroll and use code RICHROLL10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. All right, let's do the show. All right, greetings to the seekers among us, you, me, us, y'all, everyone. May this sonic pixelated vibration find you well amidst the chaos and confusion that is life Mm. My God given name is Rich Roll once again, in Vulcan mind meld in conversational communion with the high minded literary line himself, the child rearing Dodger fan, mm. global citizen of the oceans, conscious advocate for all things ecological preservation. My co-pilot on all things roll on Duke of Santa Monica Bay, Mr. Adam Skolnick, how you doing man? Wow. How about uh, that? Your intros, I just, just did myself. You were already great, you topped you. I did. What you, am I gonna do next time?
1: Um, you know, it could go, you could go full absurdist. I think you could <laughs> I go think it, full it's, Charlie It's Kaufman. already,
0: <laughs> yeah, getting a little bit surreal. Um, before you answer my question now, yes. I should mention, roll on for those who are a little bit newer to the show is our bi-monthly that's correct, right? Bi-monthly, Bi- does bi-monthly mean every other month or twice a month? Yes, I think it's I never twice know. a month. Bi-monthly is twice a month. It is bi-monthly then. It's it's most, our, I, I
1: would say it's mostly bi-monthly.
0: Mm. What, Generally is, what bi-monthly? is every
1: other month then?
0: Um, I, I think that's bi-monthly too. I think it can mean either one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, that's confusing. <laughs> anyway, either way. Roll on is our opportunity to kind of shift focus away from our traditional fair here yeah. on the RRP, which is evergreen deep dives with some of the world's most interesting minds and instead hone in on <laughs> matters of contemporaneous interest. we spin a little show and tell, We've got some interesting show and tell today. Yes. Uh, we share some wins of the week and we land our little twin prop. Seaplane with listener questions Drop down our voicemail at 424-235-4626, write that phone number down. Now you can answer my question. How
1: yeah, well, I was just gonna say after that first paragraph that you read, that was so glowing. I did then read it your... for people
0: that think that I just came up with that on the spot. I oh, did write that down. He writes these. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then the second paragraph saying, my traditional fare, evergreen deep dives with some of the world's most interesting minds instead Adam's here. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you just
0: pivot That's immediately to the self deprecating <laughs> interpretation <laughs> of that. Yeah, we're not going to do that this week. We're going to go towards the banal. Yes, yes,
1: right? yes, yes. This week, we'll just talk about Adam swimming in the Santa Monica Bay. Yeah,
0: we'll talk about masks. We'll make fun of that. Yeah. We'll do what we always do. I don't know. Well, I don't know how okay. these things go. I'm
1: doing pretty good, man. I have. This month, run over 80 miles, which is not listen for people who actually run. That's not that great. That's actually
0: but, that's quite
1: a bit of running. Yeah, I mean, you know, you pr- you have to run a lot to get to 80. Yeah, and then over swam over 10. <laughs> you have mi- to run 80 to get to, to run- 80. <laughs> this is <laughs> starting off hot. <laughs> I know. And over 10 miles of open water swimming in August. So that's amazing. My goal was to kind of get to those benchmarks, whether that's a good goal or not. Uh-huh. And then um, I have an Alcatraz swim coming up on September 11th. Nice. The South End Rowing Club. You, you know about these clubs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've
0: done the Alcatraz swim. Right.
1: So the South End Rowing Club has like a. Uh, a kind of they do their own thing, mm-hmm. and they they have the, the guys in boats or women in boats, kind of on either side, and you swim in the lane. And it's uh, I did it before uh, when when World of Open Water Swimming was doing their summit up there. And Antonio Arguez is coming to the Bay, which mm-hmm. is kind of one of his home training grounds as well, home away from home. He's either in Las Estacas in Mexico city, the, the river there, or he's swimming in the Santa, La Jolla or the San Francisco Bay. Those are his three main training grounds. And he is a member of the rowing club and he's the guest of honor at this Alcatraz swim. So he invited me up there and whenever.
0: Remind people who he is. Antonio we talked Arguez. about him the other, the
1: other time. Yeah, for... he is a two-time Guinness world record holder of an open water swimmer. So he has the, he's the oldest ever and the seventh overall ever to complete the Ocean Seven, which is the seven major channels, uh, mm-hmm. part of an Ocean Sevens group. Um, you've had Kim Chambers on the show. She was the sixth, fifth or sixth. Mm-hmm. And then Antonio was right after. He did it at 58 years of age, making right. him the oldest. He's also the oldest to ever swim the double Catalina. He did that in 2019 mm-hmm. at, uh, at 60. Stanford so, alum. Stanford alum. Mexican entrepreneur and government yeah. official.
0: So this Alcatraz swim, you're doing it without a wetsuit, right? Right, so the first time yeah. I did
1: it, I was in a wetsuit and to much to Antonio's enduring yeah, you shame. Can't,
0: I, you cannot no. save
1: face and do Alcatraz in a wetsuit. No, but speaking of face, I will be in swim mask. You will,
0: yeah. Because so <laughs> everybody in the Bay area, turn up, at uh, at what's it called Ocean Park right there? Yeah, what's right that there. Little, yeah, 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 where yeah, yeah, yeah. it finishes. I forget what to, it's called. Uh, Aqu- aquatic park. Aquatic park, yes. right? To get your pics with Skolnick in the mask. As a rare emerges. opportunity of you in the wild with yeah. the mask in the public with your people. Yeah. If listen, if
2: you're there,
1: I'm going to slow motion rise up. So there won't be <laughs> there won't be any footage of this, but I will slow motion rise up. Um, and so that's it. So I am going to shift. I'm still going to keep running a little bit, but uh-huh. I'll do more swims. You know the problem is I've been swimming in uh, you know sixty six degree water. Yeah, it's, gonna it's, be it's a little bit different. Yeah, I, I think I've yeah. told
0: this story before, but I did the Alcatraz swim many years ago when I was living in San Francisco. Um, my roommate at the time, Gavin Hollis, who swam at LSU, we did it with a bunch of friends. We did it without wetsuits, and I think it was it might have been New Year's. Like I think it was winter when we nice. did it. Fifty four. Memory recall. You know, if my memory serves me, my memory's not great. Um, and all I remember, well, I remember three things. First of all, it's really freaking cold. Like well, my, my hands and my feet went completely numb. So you feel like you're swimming with your fists. Yeah, like yeah. you can't feel your hands at all. Yeah. The second thing, and I say this as somebody who's done quite a bit of a open water swimming in many different areas around the world. It's very, and you've done it before, right? Like yeah. it's, it's kind of scary when you're in the, you kind of rear your head up when you're in the middle of it. It's not that far. It's only like a kilometer and a half or something like it's that. It's a mile,
1: one point two seven
0: miles. Right. So it's not a no, great. No, it's not distance, that far. But you're in a shipping lane. You are, but they have. And you, you know? have that set. You can kind of smell the fuel, and yeah. you, you kind of lift your head when you're halfway into water. it, and you're like, holy yeah, shit, yeah, like, yeah. like this does not feel safe.
1: Right, these guys, when you have the rowing club though, you know, they bring out those old wooden boats and they are in kayaks and those boats and they are on either side of you. So,
0: and they time it in in between the tides, right? So, right right at the beginning of like the slack tide or whatever. So, the faster you are, the less the tide affects you, the slower you are, the more it affects you because the tide starts to pick up and push you out towards the bridge. Oh, is that right? And so I just remember people who were struggling ended up down by the Safeway. Like it pushes you (laughs) towards the Marina, you know? And that becomes a problem. If you're fast, it doesn't really seem to affect you. The final thing that I recall is that, you know, I don't know who's organizing these races these days, but back in the day, whoever was in charge of this thing had a dog, I think a Labrador uh, I'm pretty sure it was a lab um, who loved doing the swim. And I just remember in Aquatic Park, like, or actually on the boat and the ferry on the way over, the dog being super excited. And then afterwards, like the dog just running around, like this is the greatest thing in the world, swimming Alcatraz. And the dog beat like half the field. <laughs> the dog
1: would definitely beat me. <laughs> dog
0: paddling <laughs> from Alcatraz to aquatic park, like did just fine. It was That's not, amazing. A, not a problem.
1: That's my big, f- I th- I, you would have obviously easily beaten the dog. I'm not sure I'd beat the dog. I'm not that fast. Well,
0: I, maybe I'm- if you traded your mask for a proper pair of goggles, possible. that would save you a little bit of you time. Know what? I've but now that. at this point, you can never wear goggles. No, I, I like it, especially in that thing. industrial water. I think we need merch, a t-shirt <laughs> with you and the mask we'll saying get, We'll get
1: to my take on merch. Yeah. I will say the last thing I'll say about it is that my time, so I've ditched the rash guard. I'm trying to get a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I am using the pool buoy a lot in the open water because I'm practicing mostly for Catalina. Um, and that makes me a little quicker, but um, I'm not kicking at all. So I don't know how that'll affect, but I'm I'm at like 205 per hundred. Mm -hmm. And that's if I take a break to pee or whatever, like I'm not stopping my thing. It's not that great, but it's not terrible. Like I've been slower before in a wetsuit, I'd be under two minutes per hundred. Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable if I can get to two minutes per hundred. I don't know what you think of that time and what any of that.
0: I mean, you know, do you want me to sound like an asshole? (laughs) (laughs) You're not impressed, are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm not gonna say anything, I'm happy for you. It's exciting, <laughs> it's all good, man. <laughs> no, but I mean, how do I get faster? I mean, I need a whole rework, don't well, I? Well, I can take you down to the pool and we can do some working out. Yeah. I've, been, I've been getting into the pool. I've, I've swum now four or five days in a row. Uh, you told me that's um, exciting. Yeah, so I just put in 3,700 before coming here in an hour. Jeez. um because you only, well, here's the thing, like I haven't swum literally in like a year, but my back has been acting up. I'm working with this great PT right now who's got me on a path towards you know, resolving this. But one of the commitments that I've made is to really lay off the running, which I hate doing because I love running so much. So, it takes everything in my power to not run. Hmm. Uh, and, and I'm now decided, you know so I'm gonna put all that energy into the pool and it's required me to have to get organized because most of the pools are, are shut down or have limited hours. There is a great facility. It's like a half an hour drive from my house and you got to book lanes like well in advance. So, I've just been really organized and proactive about making sure that I reserve time and you only get one an hour, right? So, you get an hour in one lane and you get, you get the lane an hour to yourself lane. though, that's Yeah, nice. you get the lane to yourself. Yeah. Um, there's a couple days coming up where I booked double sessions I don't know if you're allowed to book two in a row, but I'm gonna see if I can get away with it. Um, So, I'm really gonna um, put my energy into getting my swim back in shape. And I gotta say, it feels really good to be back in the water. I mean, I'm really out of swimming shape, but I'm excited to give it a try. And one of the uh, kind of catalysts for this is, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this publicly. I don't know why I couldn't, but. The Malibu Triathlon is coming up soon, which yes. is an annual event. And they do this thing every year. Uh, they have a celebrity division. yes, <laughs> Which is traditionally like television stars and like yes. Disney puts a team together. I remember like Matthew McConaughey did it several years ago. David Duchovny generally shows up. Anyway, uh, um, Alexi Pappas, friend of the pod, put a team together, asked me to join in a relay. So, I'm gonna do the swim. Alexi's gonna do the run and Mary Kane, also a friend of the pod, is gonna do the cycling portion. You might win it. it. So, we are the celebrities you've never heard of. <laughs> They're like, what should be the name of the team? And I was like three celebrities you've never heard of. That should be the name of our team. Like nobody knows who we are, you know, but. People do. At least we're athletes, so we'll see what happens. So I thought, you know, I should probably get back in the pool if I'm gonna do this. It's swim funny that you in the say ocean. that. They,
1: I got contacted by the celebrity division. Did Speaking you? of people who aren't famous in the, the non-celebrities yeah. and the celebrity, and they asked me if I do it. And at first I committed to doing the whole thing. I don't even have a bike. Uh-huh. I mean, I have a, a like a, a single speed fixie type bike, but I don't have a, a bike that I train on or anything like that.
0: So and are you gonna do it?
1: Originally I had said yes, but it's just gonna be too tough going up to Alcatraz and then Uh coming back. It's just gonna, because we're doing a a little road trip with the family on the way up. It's just gonna be too tough to do. And uh, so I, I said, no, I'm gonna make a donation to Children's Hospital instead mm-hmm. instead of raising the
0: money. Yeah, there's a fundraising piece to yep. this. Uh, I don't really know that much about it yet, but I'll let everyone know when we figure that out. But, but I, I was love, flattered. I love the fact that you flattered. got asked to be in the celebrity <laughs> know. division of the Malibu Triathlon. <laughs> Has to be a fan of That's yours awesome. running the, the I don't VIP know, it's great, man. I'm, I'm bummed that you're not gonna do it now. Well, I wish I, I didn't know you were gonna do it. Well, I just figured this out over the weekend. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or over the last couple of days, but it should be fun. Yeah, but anyway, it prompted
1: me to get back in the
0: pool, which feels good.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not a very fa- long one. It's a half mile swim, no. 17 mile ride and four mile run. Yeah, I think it's, right? it's yeah. like,
0: it's ridiculously short. Yeah. <laughs> the next one <laughs> it's is- It's mask like, the appropriate. Real,
1: the real one is like the Olympic distance, right? The international
0: distance. What do you mean by real? The next day. Yeah, they have it's a couple days. Like, I think, yeah, yeah. they have the sprint distance, they have the Olympic distance, which is kind of the traditional, you know, uh, uh, triathlon distance for, you know, the races that are out there, distinct from like the Ironman world and all of that. But also, Zuma turned one. He did. We had a bit of a a small gathering.
1: it was weird because it's Delta time, so we had we had we had it in two waves. So we had mm-hmm. a few families come in the first wave, and a few come in the second wave. And um,
0: heats. heats, you had two heats. We had <laughs> two <laughs> heats uh-huh. um, for this birthday and celebration. And at one point,
1: uh, Zuma just went, made a tried, made a break for it, and just started to like walk out to, out the gate. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I kind of followed him, and I said, "Should we? Should we, bro? Should we?" He's like, "Should we? Should we go?" Did mm. you leave, leave he's this gonna ghost his own Party, yeah. But uh, in the end, uh, he turned around, mm. so I followed him. I follow him everywhere. Yeah, you that's know. the way it goes. It's um, it's fun, man. He's, he's walking, he's talking a little bit. You know, it's it's a good time. It's uh, you know, it gives you all the feels. It's cool, man. Yeah. And so
0: uh, you were in Chicago. I was in Chicago. Uh, gave a couple talks. It's been like over two years since I've given a keynote. Um, It was with this company called Dealer Inspire that's in Naperville outside of Chicago. So, it was an opportunity to travel and meet a bunch of cool people. The organization um, was, uh, it was organized by this guy, Joe Chura, who's the CEO of Dealer Inspire. And it was followed the following day by this kind of all day outdoor event called Go. Uh, where there was a 5K run and there was like jujitsu uh, oh, cool. instruction and all kinds of cool stuff, um, so it was fun. It was it was good to get out of LA and be in the Midwest and meet some new people and shake off the cobwebs and give a give a keynote. But it also produced quite a bit of anxiety in me because it's hmm. been so long since I've kind of given a talk and. My life is very different from the last time I was on that circuit, so I had to kind of rewrite and rethink what I wanted to talk about.
1: Was that? Has be, um, it been that long because uh, of COVID, or has it been because yeah, COVID? Of you've COVID not just eviscerated
0: like like the whole speaking right, thing. Right. Um, so now it seems to you know be kicking up again. Although I was supposed to go to Park City in a couple of weeks for this Song Summit thing, where I was going to interview Jason Isbell and Sean White and we just found out today that they're canceling that because of Mm. COVID. So, everything is tentative at the moment. Um, But that trip was bookended by multiple pods on each side. So, I was on this jag of just crazy workaholism (laughs) that left me very depleted and reflecting on the fact that I'm basically an introvert by nature who can be temporarily extroverted mm. like I am doing right now or I have to do if I'm giving a talk with a bunch of people or just being around a lot of people like I can I can like gear up and embody that energy and you know provide the experience that that you know they're looking for but then I have to kind of retreat back to my cave yes. and like lick my wounds and you know yes. recover and I didn't really get an opportunity to do that so it left me like really Tired. Mm-hmm. And and also reflecting a little bit more on what we talked about in the last roll on about workflow efficiencies and how to, you know, hold on to this stuff a little bit loosely and and empower my team better and be a better manager so I can free up some of my time. So I took a couple of days off this past nice. week to um, you know, kind of recharge the batteries. I'm feeling good. I'm back in the pool. I don't know what to tell you. Like I think I think all is good. And you dodged the mountain lion? I did. In your neighborhood? I did. Yeah, there was a mountain lion attack uh, just the other day, literally in my neighborhood, Yes, like just down the street, a mountain lion attacked a small boy. The mom uh, ended up fighting it off. It's this crazy story. She was like punching it with her bare fists, I guess. Uh, And they ended up, destroying that animal. It was a cub, right? It was like yeah, a 60 I guess pound, it was a, it was it was it like was a smaller one. He's 65 pound. Um, and then they found a couple more uh, that were tagged. This one wasn't tagged right. and they relocated them. It made me think like, couldn't they have relocated this one and tagged so it?
1: So it's a P54 was the mother from what I read and um, she was collared. And the, and so it's not even a tag, it's like a full collar. Mm. And, the, and she had just had, Pu- uh, cubs and she, the 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 thinking is both these were the cubs because yeah. that one kind of got into got the boy and um, the mother was able to fight him off if it was a full grown mountain lion the mother probably wouldn't have been able to do much um, and then they found it kind of crouched like the game warden found it mm-hmm. crouched down and there was no collar and it was uh, aggressive and and he uh, couldn't they have assumed it. So I don't know, so after they shot, after he shot that animal, they, uh, the two others kind of came out, mm-hmm, the collared right. one with another juvenile. And so that's why they think both of them, the, all three are together. And then they did some DNA testing and they, they found out that um, the, the animal they shot did have the boy's skin and blood right. on his claws and all that. Anyway, the thinking usually is with cats and, and animals like this, if, if they get a taste for especially young that it could become a, a, the type of nuisance animal that's not just turning over garbage, but is actually hurting people, and so they err on the side of protecting people. That's what the game wardens always do, mm. um, and they take their criticism for it. Yeah. I think in this sense, you you can't. I mean, the game warden was worried about the five year old boy and all that, and um, yeah, I
0: understand yeah. that. It just feels yeah. like they could have relocated it somewhere where maybe it, you know to an area where that doesn't encroach on exurbs or suburbs. I mean one of the arguments here, one of the conversations around this is this is a result of encroaching no you know, habitats, but this area where this happened is not that, like it's kind of been the way it's been for quite some time. I wonder if these are the I, same
1: animals I, that were up, on, remember in, in Malibu, there was that scene, did you see like someone in their house, like up above big rock was inside, it was a father and his like teenage daughter and they were videoing, I don't know if you saw this, it was like a viral video around the pool
0: I did um, see that, Yeah, but big rock is is quite far from where uh, this range that far. Do they, oh, do yeah, they they'll have go that? that far, do they? Oh yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I run trails all around where this mountain lion was seen and I've never once seen one. I know they're around. Let me Google mountain lion range. Yeah, how, how far they wander. This is live Googling um, folks. Know, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, mountain lion range. The kid is gonna be fine, although he was, Uh, wounded, I guess that it was a juvenile about 65 pounds. Um, He had wounds, the kid had wounds to his head, neck and upper torso, but I think he's gonna be okay. The kid's gonna be okay? Yeah.
1: They're saying that it'll travel eight kilometers a day and up in eight kilometers a day, but- Did they
0: return to some kind of- hub or do they just meander?
1: This one is saying 20 miles oh, is, wow. might be their there in total range. So, that's 20 square miles. So, that's like, right.
0: yeah. So, that's so a Big Rock would chunk. be kind of going over this peak and down yeah. the other side to I get there. I think it there. would be in its range. It's definitely in the range. Yeah. Um, oh, I think you've probably uh, e-biked up up that exact <laughs> territory. E-biked. Are you making fun of me? No. Is my, is my e-bike your mask? <laughs> that e-bike out there is that yeah. yours? Rich, it's fabulous. Adam is to uh, no, that's not mine. That's a, that's Dan's actually. Oh. Um, Adam is to swim mask as Rich is to e-bike. Mm, another good slogan. for I've been our getting merch. on my road bike a little bit, but I've got to back off the cycling. Also, I'm all about the swim. The swim's going to help your back. You know that. I know. I'm hoping yeah. that's the case. And I would love
1: to get some pointers from. A swim, uh maybe we can uh, like
0: yourself uh, do a swim workout. Let's do it prior to the next roll on. Oh, let's do that. Put you through the paces. Let's do it. Shout out Al Roker. Did you see him out there? I did not. I see this link in the outline. What is this about?
1: 67 years old. He was out there in in Hurricane Ida oh, on wow. a street. But when you're watching him at first, they have him really in tight, and you just see waves <laughs> thrashing oh, yeah, him. There's
0: this video. <laughs> Al Roker pummeled by waves as Hurricane Ida but targets he, New Orleans. He stays
1: on his feet. And then when they pan out, you see he's actually on a sidewalk. Like he's not, it looks like he's in the water at first, but wow. he's actually on a sidewalk. Cause he's a pro. Hurt. He's a stud. Shout out Al Roker. Yeah. How about an Al Roker
0: shout out? Who doesn't, who doesn't love Al? I don't know. I don't know what he's like in his personal life. Well, that's one form of endurance, but we got a bunch of other endurance to discuss today Do because it. Enduro Corner is back with Enduro more Corner. high altitude trails and glacier dodging. The sports you didn't know about. <laughs> I know. Uh, hot on the heels of the three celebrities you've never heard of that will be competing in Malibu. <laughs> In you don't in need absence. To <laughs> We took your celebrity spot, Adam, when you bowed out of Malibu. They're like, Adam can't do it. <laughs> okay, Who let's get, gonna get All right, yeah, <laughs> let's we'll, get go to, we'll go to Alexi. <laughs> you guys are real celebrities. Um, I mean, you on. belong in that no. division. No, um, the Leadville 100 was this past week. Heard of week. it. Heard of that? Heard of it. Might have come up on the show before. Yes, We've been talking about it because of Robbie Ballinger. Um, This is an epic legendary ultra race. This past year, there were 678 runners and Leadville for those who don't know is at very high altitude in Colorado. I think around 10,000 feet. This run has 16,000 feet of gain. Its highest point is at Hope Pass, Mm -hmm. which is 12,600 feet. And you hit that twice. Um, Yeah, it's an out and back and and Robbie Ballinger used it to complete his Colorado crush. So shout out to Robbie.
1: Amazing Um, Robbie.
0: Yeah, I mean, over the course of the summer (laughs) he just never stopped running, did the Leadville marathon, the Colorado trail, which is 500 miles, the Silver Rush 50. Then he summited all 58 of the Colorado peaks over 14,000 feet and culminated with the Leadville 100, uh, which is quite, Something I'm sure there's a documentary uh, or at least some, some kind of film that's being made. Reese Robinson was following him around, chronicling all of this. So shout out to my team 10,000 brother from amazing another mother.
1: His, his post was great. He said his first 13 miles, he was surprisingly in good shape and he was like flying. And then from then on, it was like- Just brutal. Very hard to get yeah. to eighty-seven miles. I like know. hitting the wall at thirteen is.
0: I think he only had like a day or two, right, in between his final Colorado peak and that one hundred. Mm. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. So. How much? How much is his
1: total uh, elevation gain? Did he ever say? I don't know. That would be know fun if he's to tabulated see. Tabulated it. Yeah, it's got to be just bananas. Oh yeah. I mean, it's got to be hundreds of thousands. Yeah. yeah. Right.
0: I know. Yeah. Um, first in the race was Adrian McDonald. He did this race in 16 hours and 18 <laughs> minutes which was just like insane. 100 miles with that kind of elevation gain in, in just over 16 hours. It was a sub 10 minute per mile average pace for the entire thing. He won it by 40 minutes. So, dominated. Ian Sharman came in second. He's a four-time Leadville champ at 1659. And third, and this is really the interesting story from my perspective, is Anton Krupicka, who's 38 now, uh, came back after six years off competing, essentially in any ultra race. I think he might've done one thing here or there, but nothing of any significance since 2015. He's a two-time champion of this race. He won it in 2006 and 2007, and then kind of disappeared. Um, And he's somebody that, was an initial inspiration for my journey. I mean, he's been around for a long time. I followed him forever. He used to do this blog where he would share his runs and he'd have these topo maps and show you where he, you know, was training. And kind of like this soul surfer of ultra running, kind of like Ricky has a Ricky Gates vibe to him a okay. little bit. Uh, and just, you know, somebody who I just think is cool, like super cool. And to see him come back hmm. and reestablish himself by getting third in this race, I think is extraordinary. And it's really. And not that far behind. No, seconds. not that far behind. Like, I mean, he's been hampered by all kinds of injuries. He's had all kinds of problems and he rock climbs and rides his bike, but I just thought he was done. I had no idea that he, you know, would make this kind of comeback. And I think what's cool and interesting about it, not just you know, aside from the fact that he's just a cool dude and somebody that everybody wants to see do well, he's defied this sort of unwritten rule that ultra running champions have a pretty short shelf life when it comes to maintaining their peak performance. Like there's a long history of ultra running champions who come on the scene, they're unbeatable. They win a ton Mm -hmm. of races in a compressed period of a couple years and then really struggle to maintain that or to stay on top. They never are able to really return to form. And I don't know whether it's because it's just too brutal on the body or they overtrain, I'm not sure. But the fact that he kind of took this break and came back and, and just you know put his stamp on this race, I think is really cool. And it'll be interesting to see whether other ultra runners, you know, it, it, it's like these ultra runners, they go, they can't they can't compete at the high level in these races anymore. So then they go and they tackle these FKTs and do other mm. types of adventures like Timothy Olson, Scott Jurek, et cetera. Right. Um, and, you know, being 38 for Anton, I mean, I think it's pretty cool.
1: What's the, what? what's the like, who's the all time leader in victories in these?
0: Major I'm not steeped enough in the history to know that there's, I'm gonna get, Shellacked for not knowing that offhand. I mean, there's plenty of people out. I mean, Scott Jurek, like there's there's lots of, you know, runners who go on these jags and they win tons of races. I don't know who's the most victorious of 20s. all time. Killian, maybe? Scott Jurek, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but I should know that, but I don't. And who you won could Google the Google that in side. real time? Let's do it. Um, Annie Hughes won on the women's side. She's only twenty three and she's a Leadville resident. That's pretty cool. Mm. Um, And she won the race by over an hour, I think in 21 hours and six minutes. So that's pretty cool. So that's the Leadville 100 recap followed uh, by UTMB, which just went down this past weekend. This is kind of like the ultra race of all ultra races. It's a quite a big deal. It's 106 and a half miles um, during which time uh, you run around Mont Blanc and you go through France, Italy, and Switzerland. There's 2,347 runners. Um, just a you know a race that that gets a lot of attention. There's a huge crowd that shows up at the finish line. It's very celebrated and and quite you know something to behold. Just like epic in its landscapes, but it started off with a dark note because this UTMB event is not just the one primary race i guess over the course of several days there's a bunch of other races that mm-hmm. lead up to the the big race and there was a death this runner died in a fall mm. at a race called TDS earlier in the week and they had to partially halt the race and you know somebody basically slipped and fell off a cliff yeah. as far as i can tell uh, and um I think yeah, and people second, whoever was
1: ahead of that point got to finish, and anyone who was right, behind it had to turn around and get a ride go back. back.
0: Yeah, so such an awful thing, and the second in a year that after that thing in China, right? Remember? I so do remember. that was, I mean, that was, I know, you know, a different level. I know. So that was horrible, but UTMB still, you know, basically went off nonetheless. Um. And uh, Courtney DeWalter, mm. friend of the pod, established herself as the true GOAT. Amazing. She set the women's record, breaking a record that was set on a course that I think was about three kilometers shorter okay. than the one that she ran, Incredible. which makes it all the more impressive. She was seventh overall, including the men, which is unbelievable uh, and did it in 22 hours and 30 minutes. So, it's, it's just like amazing. Like mm. she just dominated. Mm. Dominated, congrats, Courtney. Uh, yeah, and did it with a smile on her face. There was some concern because she had to uh, she DNFed at Hard Rock 100 due to some stomach issues. Right. So there was some concern that you know that might happen again. And I guess there was a, a, a point in the race when she did start throwing up and thought that perhaps she was having flashbacks of Hard Rock. Um, but after she threw up and started running. Again, uh, it all kind of settled out, and she was fine.
1: Digestive issues are common on these, right? I mean,
0: did you ever have nausea or vomiting yeah, yeah, yeah. on some I of mean, these? I mean, it's part of it. You barf, yeah. and then yeah. you keep going, or whatever. <laughs> you know, Fair. things are bad, then they're better. Right. But sometimes, when the digestion stuff gets out of control, and you see this in Iron Man a lot, it's really hard to get it settled again. Crazy. So. Carl Meltzer
1: is the winningest 100 miler of all oh, time, yeah. according to a website called Ultra Spire. Hmm. And I don't know how, you know, how old this post is. How do, they, how do they qualify is. that?
0: Like, is it the most ultras that you've won? Cause you could go it's, and win tons of ultras that aren't the big ones. This is, he's, got, he's, he's gotten 40
1: hundred mile race victories at least. Wow! So when this was posted, he's, he's garnered his 40th back in looks like 2008. See 2018? No, it doesn't have a, it. This could be 2016, could be 2018. Someone could have passed him, but he's over. He's got 40 at least, according to this.
0: That's impressive. Mm-hmm. He is, a beast. and the most
1: hundred mile wins in a calendar year as well.
0: Mm. Shout out Carl Mount. Carl Um The men's victory uh, was was nabbed by Francois de mm. uh, French. Also Solomon Runner. It's his fourth UTMB victory. Just weeks after winning the Hard Rock 100. So he did the double that Courtney was attempting. Right. He completed UTMB in 20 hours and 45 minutes. He's also got three kids. And I guess he's like a, a he, he has a vineyard or he's a wine grower. How cool. Yeah. I don't know that much about this guy, but that's pretty cool. I mean, fourth UTMB victory. That's unbelievable. So Huge weekend for Solomon. That's why I'm rocking the Solomon T-shirt today. Shout go out Solomon. to my Solomon. It's embarrassing for me. Oh, my Solomon, my Solomon yeah. teammates. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> hey, and that, Camille Bruyas, I think Bruyas. Yeah, I think that's how you say Brouillac. her last name. Was was the second woman who's also a Solomon athlete. Is she American? Uh, I don't know. I don't. Let think me so. go, let no, me no, live no. Google it. She's not. I don't think she is. No. Um, but among the Americans French yeah French, French. Camille's French part, among part the Americans, Jim Walmsley and Tim Tolfson both dropped out. they're both beasts in their own right, unbelievable runners, both of them. Um, and Jim, I think was on track to do re- he was way up there he was on tr- and seemed really relaxed and, and you know in contention, but didn't work out for him, which is the way it goes with these things. Uh, final thing to discuss in our Enduro corner yes. is this 24 hour world record that was set over the weekend. What, I missed that. So, it was this 24 hour race in Poland called Ultra Park Weekend. And this guy who I'd never heard of before, Sonja Sorokin, who's Lithuanian, broke the 24 hour record that was set by this guy, this Greek dude, Janos Kouros, mm. that was considered untouchable. Um, that guy, Coros, uh, had run 188.5 miles in 1997 <laughs> in 24 uh, hours. Yeah, and <laughs> and Sonia ran 192.25 miles on a on a one, like a one a one mile loop. Jeez. So for context, that's averaging 729 per mile for 24 hours straight. Good lord, which is un. Believable So he improved on Ko's record by six kilometers. Um, when, when Koros ran 188, that was on a track actually, mm. and he did 180 on road. so this I think was on a path. Um, Sorokin's loop was like a one- mile like a, like a paved path, so okay. it was kind of not a road but not a track either. Yep. but unbelievable. hmm. Unbelievable. Did did,
1: did uh, he have pacers like uh, when Kipchoge got his record? I mean, I'm sure, right?
0: I don't know, but I will say, if you're interested in, in diving deep into this stuff, a great resource is irunfar.com. I mean, basically if you wanna learn more about UTMB or Leadville or this 24 hour world record or, or all things ultra running, uh, you know, basically is where you go to learn everything you wanna know. Nice. How's the live Googling going for you? Do you enjoy it? <laughs> I, I do, I, it's feeling very uh, Rogan-esque. <laughs> we don't have a Jamie, you're the no, Jamie, right? I, I am. So pull that up, Adam.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: Can you pull that up for me? I think you're on it. Huh? Um, let's talk about Lewis Pugh. Do we have an Lewis update Pugh. on him? We do. He's doing this code red Arctic swim, <clears throat> his Speedo diplomacy. Right, it started, I believe on the 24th or
1: 20, yeah, 24. 20- 25th it started. So today is technically the sixth day, but as of yesterday, I think it was the fifth day. He's only been able to swim tw- two of those mm-hmm. days because of ice, so I'll get into that. So the first day he swam just under a kilometer. He did about 500 meters in the morning, another 490 in the afternoon um, in zero degree water, yeah. like literally zero Celsius, zero degrees Celsius, so 32 degree yeah. Fahrenheit. So it's it's just, it's like, 0.1 and degrees and no warmer than suit. freezing. No wetsuit, no swim mask, goggles and speedo and a swim cap. Just the typical open water uniform. And so he can only be in there 10 minutes at a time. So they mm-hmm. decided to do this. So he goes in there, he gets out, it takes him two to two and a half hours to warm back up to his normal core temperature. After, after 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, he's, he's, got, he's, he's got his lowest body temp so far. At, at the, this He sent me this two days ago, 95.7 degrees. And so he's got a, a rigid inflatable boat with like a reinforced hull that sticks right by his side. And that's what he's swimming with. But you know, three of the days he's had problems with ice. One of the days it was just really fast moving brash ice brash ice and, and icebergs. Brash ice is like any piece of ice that's less than two meters across. Mm-hmm. It kind of looks from above like that crushed ice slush. Yeah. And if you touch that with your bare skin, it's gonna have salt and all sorts, it's gonna cut you up. And so you know you basically can't swim through that, so in the second swim on the first day, he's swimming around brash ice, he's swimming around icebergs. He said, "There's an iceberg a thousand feet tall that like is like cruising in his path. So that's yeah. the kind of stuff he's dealing with.
0: It's weird. Like when he first was saying, Oh, I can't swim, there's just there's ice floating in here and it's too dangerous, yeah. I thought, like, we'll just swim around it. But right. then he shared a video and you see this ice flow and you're like, Oh now I get it. Like it's just it's just packed with like, you know, big pieces of ice that are floating that yeah. are just you know, there's a current and they'll just go right into you and like hit you in the head and he, stuff. he said the second swim was like basically swimming across a
1: highway. Yeah. And he was able to get through. It's like Frogger. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Frogger, except it's Lewis. And then today he posted that, like, literally, he has the boat in the water, but it's surrounded by ice. Like, there's just no open water. It looks Mm -hmm. like the ice completely moved in. So, um, you know, some of that is it's coming off the main ice sheet and and dumping into the water. So it's not necessarily good news just because it looks colder than, you know, it looks like it should look, maybe. But um, so we'll see, we'll stay tuned with him. I'm in touch with him. Um, we've been messaging back and forth. Uh, it, it, the footage he has posted is just absolutely unreal. Yeah, so um, you can
0: find that on either his Twitter feed or his Instagram, Instagram is where you wanna And it's P-U-G-H.
1: Yeah, he's posting the kind of like two minute videos mm-hmm. on there and then ultimately we'll see how it goes, but that's what's happening. On the uh, Lewis Pew front, so All congrats right. to Lewis. Thanks for doing it. He's he's really raising the code red on climate crisis. Yeah. Are you bummed that you're not there in oh, Greenland yeah. doing this? Big time. Yeah. But you know, it was it was Zuma's birthday, so the, by the time he he was able to get his plane organized and the timing of it, like if Delta hadn't got into Greenland, if if uh, and he started on August fourteenth, it would have happened been time. weeks ago. I would have yeah. been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thus concludes Enduro Corner for this roll on. Do you think we, that we did it today? I like Enduro Corner. It is, right? Yeah. It's good. It's very on brand. <laughs> it is. Um, do you think anybody else cares? I think so. I think so. Maybe, who knows? Anyway, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with show and tell, the big story, listener questions and more. where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Adam, we need you back in in actual reality, not virtual reality. Rich, you've never looked better, my friend. (laughs) I mean that. For those that are just listening, Adam is donning virtual reality goggles. He's got Oculus on top of his head right now. I'm deep in the Oculus. Are you gonna just remain there or are you gonna come back to us? I'll
1: come back to you, but um, this is uh, a friend of the pods new project, which you've discussed with him. I think you've even tried it, right? Yes,
0: our friend, Michael Muller, He's got this incredible new VR experience called Into the Now, which is available on Oculus, where you can experience what it's like to swim with sharks. Sharks, Un- whales, uncaged.
1: Uncaged, eels. Yes, um, I wish you could see what I'm seeing right now, Rich,
0: because there's a beautiful view of a canyon. So we, during the break, we tried to get this thing sorted out. We had to unbox it and do all the down, the sort of update software updates. Yeah. We're trying to get the whole thing configured. It was taking longer than expected. Sorry about that. Which mimics the experience we had when Michael was here because uh, we took a break during that podcast so that I could experience uh, what you're trying to experience right now. And it took a while to get it up on its feet, but I was able to see it. So I already know what it's like uh, and it's quite extraordinary. And this is available now. Is it available you now? Can, I think is it's it?
1: still beta. They wanna send us something. Uh, it's almost available. It's about to come out and it's, um, but it will be, be out soon. I think it's, the idea is Michael Muller is this great commercial photographer renowned. Uh, but has always been also an underwater photographer mm-hmm. published an amazing book on sharks which i bought the the, the sitting right over there yeah yeah the yeah, incredible book, book. <laughs> and his Tashin exhibit was you know also equally great yeah. and and this is basically he always thought that was two dimensional he wants to make a three dimensional experience to get people to see some of these animals mm-hmm. if they can't get in the water cuz you know he's going all over the world how many world.
0: people are actually going to go swim with sharks other than okay. you adam You've made this a habit, a practice. You don't wow. need the virtual reality experience. You're doing this well, Rich. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes.
1: Yeah. No. No. I've 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 been very fortunate to have uh, been in the water with sharks many times, but not great whites. Uh, other than being, I am with great mm-hmm. whites, kind of, but I haven't seen them. Yes. Um, in the you're Santa among America them. Bay. I'm among them, but actually... haven't seen them. Uh, but. The, and, but there's whale sharks in here, there's whales. I have been lucky enough to swim with whales too. So yes, I'm fortunate that I've had all that, but you know, once you've had it, you can't get enough of it. You just want more and right. more of it. So even me, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I mean, if I had this at home and I could plug in and just check out whales and sharks all the time, I, I, I don't think I'd be in R too much. I would just stay in VR.
0: That's concerning. I know. I'm with you. I think it's really cool. And I've actually never really spent, I'm not a gamer. I haven't spent time with these um, goggles on, but just in the few minutes that I was experiencing it during the break, it's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. It's kind of amazing. It's cool. My my problem is that one eye sees better than the other. So even in this just now. Me too, but I think you can make those
0: adjustments. I mean, we were trying to get this up on its feet quickly, but you can adjust the lenses on it. And just the setup process with the minority report yeah, dashboard and the whole fun. thing, like it's pretty crazy. I mean, I'm all about lucidity and tactile real world experience. right? Um, you know, I have a lot of uh, you know fears about where we're headed with all of this technology that I think are well reasoned. But um, for experiences like this to tap into what it might be like to um, have an adventure that you're unlikely to have, I think there's a lot of benefit and I can see this exploding into all areas of adventure. And I think one of the things that could be potentially most positively impactful is the ability for experiences like this to breed empathy, Mm. essentially by allowing people to travel to places they wouldn't ordinarily be able to go to experience different cultures Mm. and to have a much more, you know, kind of profound experience with, you know, world's unknown than they would otherwise be able to. So again, well it's set. technology presented as an opportunity to bring us together. We've tried this experiment before. We'll right. see how this goes, but um, I'm optimistic for. Well, this has like this piece of where we could take this type of technology, and that's we talked about this with Mueller. Like, yeah. if you can go to visit, you know, basically spend time with a village in Africa and see what that would be like, or. Be in you know Egypt or any number of places all over the world and get a sense of different cultures and different experiences. Or with Alex Honnold, we were talking about rock climbing. Like, what does it feel to like, to like you know basically ascend a, you know a face? Yeah, and do what he does. Wouldn't it be great to feel what solo, that must feel like? Yeah, a free yeah, solo like, version where you're like, like hanging on. I know, right? Looking down. I'm sure there will be all kinds of experiences like that, but. But when it comes down to it, R is is
1: much better than VR. Yes. But when we it com- all
0: default to R.
1: But not everybody is going to be comfortable swimming underwater. Not everyone wants no. to be in a scuba rig. Not everyone wants to free or, dive or can or is so, able to. Yeah, right. Right. So so all of that means there is there is a place, there's an, a place for this. Yeah. Is it the gamification of adventure? Is that problematic? Who knows? You know, there's always three moves down the way, mm-hmm. but for now let's celebrate this one. Sure, move. and yeah, we yeah.
0: love Michael and everything that he's about. And this is quite an accomplishment and everything that this guy does, he does with such attention to quality and yeah. integrity. So. Check it out. It's called Into the Now. But we is it it's in beta right now. Can you yeah. so you can't actually purchase I had to email
1: I had to email someone and tell them um, you know, that we need the, the a certain t- I guess I think there's another app that we have to download. So right. I'll get it all sorted out. Cool. And be back with you. Right on. But uh, but really excited about this. I mean I, I do believe that like he's doing this out of the love of being underwater and wanting to share it with people. It's super cool that, yeah. that he's thinking that way.
0: Yeah. Should we do the big story? The big story.
1: I was interested when I sent you this uh, article, I didn't know how you'd take it to be honest with you.
0: Mm. So the big story is based on an article that was in the New York times, an opinion piece um, by uh, somebody called Cassidy Rosenblum and it's called work is a false idol. And I think this is interesting. It's basically, it's, it's ly- lying I mean, flat. You, you right? know, explain it.
1: Yeah. So the idea is uh, there's this movement that started in China where someone basically didn't want to go to his job anymore and decided to not show up and just lay flat. And he called it the lying flat movement. And he was referencing Diogenes. Is it Diogenes? Diogenes. Diogenes in his, uh, who was the original cynic, back when a cynic meant uh, to live self-sufficiently and in tune with nature and not be interested in money, power, and fame. So now we've twisted cynic as something who's always a naysayer or whatever, Mm -hmm. but in reality- In the the same way that we
0: twisted the stoic to mean somebody who is like rigid and unemotional. Right, so cynic and stoic we've gotten wrong And this makes me
1: really happy because what it it means is, which I've always known is I am a cynic. Yes. Um, Luo Huazong is the person who just decided to tweet from his bed basically. And then he's not going back to work. And he wants to spend. Can his you time.
0: tweet and be a cynic
1: though? And he was he was reading, and he wanted it's to. It's not read. very Walden Pond. <laughs> no, but this is. He just wanted to read and exercise and enjoy his life. And he didn't. And it's not, he would he would do a job when he needed to. He was opting out of like the they had called it like nine nine six lifestyle in China, um, and which is I think it's six days a week or 9 a.m. to nine p.m. six days a That's week. That's it. Nine nine six, and um, Which
0: was promulgated by uh, the founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma.
1: Right, so he's an
0: anti, he's a cynic of Jack Ma.
1: And um, and then she was an NPR producer. So she was a successful producer. The writer of this piece. The writer of the yeah. piece, Cassidy. And she was like, you know what? I'm going home to West Virginia. <laughs> I'm gonna sit on the porch and watch Hummingbirds. I'm through this news cycle. And which is, you know, it's one thing for someone who's trying to break into media and is a young person to have that attitude, but to someone who has seen success, and I would say producing for NPR at, mm-hmm. when you're young is great success in this business, um, and then to retreat from that is really interesting to me. And she writes really uh, beautifully about why, and and and, and um, you know she points to the fact that Aluo is only one person who is talking about lying flat. Casey Gerald is a a writer for New York Magazine. He's written a book, a memoir. Um, He's a a black author who talks about uh, lying flat as rebellion, who basically opted out of the protest to take care of himself and his soul. And he and she links to an incredible essay of his that I just got into this morning. And it's it's incredible. she talks about the NAP ministry, which is uh, uh, led by a woman, another uh, black activist who's taking naps uh, as kind of rebellion, open rebellion. And she leads like clinics on naps. And uh, I mean, you should be able to take a nap without it being an act
0: of rebellion.
1: But she is like, all of this is basically if you're, if you're sleeping, you can't further like the capitalist enterprise. You know, right. like there's a political aspect to what Luo's doing there's a political aspect to, to dropping out like Casey did in his in his essay. Um, she's just pointing out that, and this is more widespread than we think. We have 10 million job opener, openings in the United States right now, highest in two decades. People do not want to work. Is that because wages are low? If so, then how come people at Goldman Sachs are also whispering about not wanting to work?
0: It's very interesting yeah. because with the pandemic and the closing of so many businesses, the logical extrapolation of that would be people clamoring for jobs, Uh right? Like the sort of employers being in high demand and being able to dictate terms because people would be so desperate to find a way to make ends meet. And yet what we're seeing is something very different altogether. And I think um, that's what interested me about all of this. Like, Okay, here we are in the pandemic. There's, you know, with these predictions of massive unemployment, there's unemployment, but it's unemployment by, uh, by choice mm. on some level. And maybe that's because people are just, you know, banking unemployment checks and reluctant to let go of that to go take jobs that aren't going to pay much more. But I think also uh, the impact of the pandemic. On how people are thinking about their relationship to their professions more broadly? Yeah, I mean, she
1: was pointing that out too. like she's like maybe some of it is the kind of turbo boosted employment benefits, but some of it is also definitely a deep dissatisfaction. What's that dissatisfaction? Is it that um, that you know work work has become too important to our lives, that like having a career define us has become too important? Um, you know, is there something, is there something wrong with the way we approach our work life and therefore our whole life? Um, and I don't think you could look at all this discussion of mental health. You can look at um, you know suicide rates and you know antidepressant rates and drug addiction and you know all of this.
3: Mm-hmm. There,
1: there, you know, there is there are a lot of dissatisfied people out there, and maybe the work component is part of that. I think that's what this essay is getting into, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think there's a generational piece to this as well. Yeah. Like me being Gen X and the you know progeny of boomers, I was raised to think about career in a certain way. And what I see amongst millennials and, and Gen Zers is a very different approach altogether. One that's founded on, um, You know, pursuing what it is that makes you feel excited and having a kind of independent contractor relationship with what you do, where you go from gig to gig and you're not overly tied down to any particular avenue. Mm. And that of course allows people to take long breaks and go on adventures, and you know you right. see young people like living the van life and you know having the four-hour work week experience or living in Bali and right. being digital, you know, kind of the digital nomad kind of, yeah, piece, yeah, and you know, d- of this digital too. nomads and yeah. all of that. And I think that's all super cool. This is one step further to say like I don't want to do anything essentially. Right. So
1: she also yeah. referenced. Uh, um, a Twitter user who posted, I don't want a career, I wanna sit on the porch and it got 400,000 likes. I know, and this is a woman
0: woman who had like, who has like 3,500 followers on Twitter. It's not like a Twitter celebrity, it's essentially like a fairly average person who tweeted this thing and it went crazy. So, certainly there's something afoot here. Mm -hmm. How much of that is a reaction to this current moment versus something that's a little bit more generational or permanent. I'm not sure we quite know right now, but.
1: But it's been going on for a while. There's a book by Tom Hodgkinson called How to Be Idle that had great reviews. I found mm. it through Dwight Garner, who's my favorite literary critic. I think I've mentioned him before on this podcast. He's at the New York times and it's it's one of his all time faves. I think he wrote um, this book came out in 2005. So this has been something some people have, now he was kind of alone. It kind of, the the book is structured throughout a whole day, like 8 a.m. The first chapter I'll just read the first paragraph. The first chapter is called 8 a.m. Waking up is hard to do. And this is how it starts. I wonder if that hardworking American rationalist and agent of industry, Benjamin Franklin, knew how much misery he would cause in the world. When back in 1757, high on puritanical zeal, he popularized and promoted the trite and patently untrue aphorism. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise.
0: <laughs> I've lived my whole life on that aphorism. Is it aphorism? But I like. Lo- is that? Am I using that word wrong? No, I, I sure. think I might have. Um, yeah, like okay, we're gonna have a revisionist history on <laughs> Benjamin Franklin and his approach to life and work. Like, yes. how dare Benjamin Franklin? You know, basically peru asp- pursue uh, aspirational things. Listen, now's not the time to defend yeah. the founding fathers. The, er, rich, the 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 childhood book that I was given. And, and, and read many times over as a young person was the early bird gets the worm. And my whole life is all about the early bird gets the worm. I've got a new and life for you. this is an antidote to that, how to be idle. <laughs> how to be idle. The Loafer's, Loafer's Manifesto. Manifesto. Like every instinct <laughs> in me is just balks at that. You must read this then. I know, so here's the thing. I think the healthy thing here is, is holding our relationship to our work a little bit more lightly and, and understanding that who we are is not what we do. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I struggle with um, in an unhealthy way. And I think probably most people of my generation, you know, contend with, I was recently, I'm not gonna spoil it, but I had a guest on the, the show on, a, on, a, on an upcoming podcast that hasn't gone live yet, who challenged me to, ta- to take a year off. A year. At which I balked and they said, Okay, how about six months? And it really made me anxious in the moment. Just right. just being asked that question or being challenged to do that, because so much of who I am is tied up, my identity is wrapped up in in what I do. And if I stop doing that, what does that mean about who I am? Right. And that goes into workaholism and how I think about myself and my attachment to relevancy and you know, all of it, right? And material, things, yeah, material right? things, all of it. Yeah. Like, am I a provider? Am I a man? Like, who am I? Am I, you know, meaningful if I'm not constantly putting content out and mm. all of it, right? It challenges you to really um, deconstruct that and evaluate that for yourself, which is scary for me. So, I think within the context of the conversation of work as a false idol, there's important lessons to be mined about about, again, our relationship to work in general and how we are all in a culture in which identity is so inextricably linked to what it is that we do. I mean, it's a trope, like you go to a party, what do you do? And it's your career, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean if we reframe that and ask a different question or we let go altogether of attaching meaning to work as, a substrate for identity itself and i think as a thought experiment if nothing else that's something important and healthy to do i'm not ready to you know be a loafer and sit on the you know I'm, i want to do things in the world i have ambition and i'm not going to feel guilty about that either but i do think having a healthy relationship with that is important and i question how healthy my relationship with that is right now hmm. it's healthier than it's been in the past but I think that there's you know more work that I personally could do around this, and I think that's why this piece like resonated with me because it made me angry. You know, it's oh like, really? How, yeah, a little bit. It's nice. Like, come on, like really? Okay, but she's we're such gonna, a great we're writer. All gonna, we're all gonna we're all gonna pat each other on the back because we we just want to lie down and we don't want to go to work.
1: Well, I, I find it like it's an act of rebellion. So it's like basically saying, here's this, you know, like do with what you want. She doesn't care. She's on the on her parents' porch, but she is on uh, her parents' porch. Yeah, it's her
0: parents' porch. Right. Get your so own damn porch. Her, yeah, it's fine. Her parents have Missy. to go to work and do that so that she can lie down. Like that's <laughs> I'm sure, you know, look. Don't you think What th- would what would Goggins say about all of this?
1: He would not be on team uh lie down. <laughs> right. But I will say this. So if you look at the gradations of like American life and work, right? From the farm to the factory, from the factory to growing, You know, like the thing was to get into college and Mm -hmm. to work your way to the point where you don't have to be doing working with your hands. This was kind of like, this is the mainstream culture, right? I'm not saying I endorse any of this, but this is how it kind of went. And so then it became go to college so you don't have to do what I did son or daughter and you can, you know, look after yourself and have have more, right? It's all about have more, have more. Then our generation came along, and we saw that our parents who did these jobs—if you're in kind of—if your parents are in the professional world, doing like, uh, you know, not, teachers might might find meaning, but often lawyers don't. You've had that personal experience, right?
0: Giant swaths of the population who who did that responsible thing so that they could have this stuff, but ultimately are unfulfilled. Right. And the kids know that their parents are unfulfilled. And so the kids so the are next like, generation do what you love meaning. Pursue yes.
1: what you love. So we pursue what, our, what we love, but then that becomes our entire being, right? Mm-hmm. So like, yes, I'm, I gotta do this. This is who I am. Like it becomes, once you start your own business or get into media or do whatever, it becomes such an all encompassing. You've had to fight so hard to get whatever rung you're on that um, that you don't wanna give it up. And I understand that completely. And it, be, it does become a little bit of who you are. This is the next evolution of that, asking why is that? So it's really, how it's much really of that just is the same thing by... as that we were reflecting on our parents. It's the same, this is the exact, this is another level of that. But this is saying, it, why
0: are you like that? Isn't it a function of a dearth of meaning in the workplace? Like if people found greater meaning and purpose in what they pursue career wise, then work would not be the intolerable thing that is motivating this movement of rest as resistance. I, I would I would put it this way. Why does anything really, <laughs> none, I hate to say it. Are you gonna <laughs> get like nihilistic yes. on the cynics?
1: Yes, I'm gonna go the, full cynic. The anti-cynic? I'm gonna, no, this is full cynic, I'm gonna go full cynic. What does it really matter? If like, even Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in Big Magic, she's like, no one's asked you to write that book basically. Mm-hmm. So Casey's saying, no one asks you to do that. Like you don't need it. The
0: world doesn't necessarily need it. Like, Can you find meaning and purpose and fulfillment without attaching it to doing something? Maybe the do nothing thing So I, my,
1: the book that I wrote There's before- There's a Buddhist piece to this. Yes. The, the book I wrote before One Breath was uh, called Middle to Somewhere, it was a novel. Unpublished. It got me an agent, but it didn't. We didn't get end up. Mm-hmm. It was like one of those no, almost not quite. Didn't get a publisher. Still like it, but um, the main character basically inherits some money and decides to do nothing. <laughs> it's the do nothing theory, and he travels the world just to, to like try to do as little as possible. And the idea is that you. By doing, the more you do, the more you're impacting, you know, the, 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 the sub question is, or the sub theor, uh, thesis is beware of the unintended consequences of good intentions. The more you try to do to even fix something, the more problems. So there's this article in the New York Times about cotton totes and how, an organic cotton tote needs to be used 20,000 times to offset its overall impact of production. Mm. Um, this is a, based on a 2018 study by the Ministry
0: 20,000 times, what, what defines a use? Just taking it to the store it, one using time. Using it
1: 20,000 times, that means daily use for 54 years and that's for one bag. And you think when you're wearing your cotton tote that says, you know no more plastic bags <laughs> that you're helping. Yeah. And yes, you're helping keep plastic out of the waste stream, but you're not, but there is this other Use And and the point is like, even- So
0: the point is, it's so hard to be good. It
1: is like even being good has a ramification, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same thing we talked about with the sixth extinction. It's like the fact that we're even talking about this is a- So if we opt out of of even
0: trying to be good and just do nothing, we'd be better off. There is that
1: argument. That is the argument of Mr. Hodgkinson. (laughs) Okay,
0: so (laughs) with that, that person still needs to eat and they're either gonna get a plastic bag or they're gonna use their cotton tote. You still have to do things. Yes, You can't opt out completely. Listen, I'm not opting out. I'm sitting here with you, but I will- You could sit under the Bodhi tree for only so long before you have to eat something or move your body or interact with other human beings. And Even Luo um, saying, I want to lay flat, but he's also
1: saying, I wanna exercise. Like to me, for us, like swims are the ultimate even runs are the ultimate of do of, it's part of the do nothing. It's not like you're doing nothing, but you, you aren't producing anything. You know, you really aren't, you're just swimming. And there's something but about you these doing benefits. something. You are, but you're not the do nothing. Everything means- is a
0: choice, whether you're choosing to sit on the porch, go for a swim, go to work, use a cotton tote or a plastic bag, you're making choices all the time. So the flaw in the premise is that you're opting out and not not making choices.
1: Right, and, and you're saying that is your choice. You are making,
0: that's an active choice nonetheless.
1: And the cynic, I think self-sufficiency was a big part of that. And you can't be a self, self-sufficient if you're engaging in the food stream then you're not really the full cynic.
0: Well, nobody is completely self-sufficient. We're all part of a greater ecosystem and we make choices about how we interact with that. But I do think it's interesting that there's this now resurgence of interest in cynicism in the traditional philosophical sense. And I wonder whether there's a movement afoot to modernize uh, the kind of philosophy of cynicism, to the mainstream, in the way that Ryan Holiday and and others have championed stoicism into the mainstream by writing books about it, and there's a lot of overlap between cynicism and you know Henry David Thoreau and right. these great traditions of people opting out of the flow of society to do something different and find meaning outside of the constraints of the rules that govern polite society. Exactly, I love it. I love and this there's idea. something cool about that. Yes. But I don't know, man. I I mean, you know, I'm 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 too old to have valid commentary on this. But I think it is a thing when you see 10 million job openings and people just saying, "I'm not going to take that job." Right. And and in a moment when you would think, like everybody would be clamoring for jobs,
1: and some of them are doing nothing, they're taking the unemployment and doing nothing, and that's fine. And some of them are probably trying to get their own thing going, which whatever it is. it reminds me of that, like the, this idea of do nothing and the, the consequences of that and and what you're talking about cynicism brings me to this article you sent me yesterday, uh, an interview with the Beyond Meat CEO, Evan, what's the last name? Uh,
0: no, his name is uh, Ethan, Ethan Brown. Ethan Brown. Yeah.
1: Um, hedonistic altruism is brought up in that, he brings yeah, it up.
0: Which is interesting. So this was a article on Ethan that was in the, the Sunday New York Times yesterday, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So Ethan, Friend, friend of the pod, he was on an early episode of the show. CEO, founder of Beyond Meat. Um, there was not much in this article that I didn't already know, or that right. isn't kind of like widely known about him. But there is something interesting about the idea of hedonistic altruism, which is in the title of the piece that relates to this idea of cynicism. Right. So I guess tangentially.
1: So. Ethan's premise is, you know, he he grew up on a farm. He decided he didn't want to have to kill anything to eat. We, why should I? I'm not an, you know, just because animals do it doesn't mean we need to do it. And uh, he he's an example of doing something that has actually had a had a net positive impact so far, and that's getting people off meat, getting them onto these meat alternatives. I personally like eating the meat alternatives once or twi- once a week or twice a week at the most. And I like it; it tastes good. And I'm one of those people that does eat it. Um, and but it's mostly for people who are meat eaters who are kind of gravitating mm-hmm. towards. And it is making a big environmental impact, according to some studies. And but in this article, he's like, you know, it used to be to be ecologically conscious, you had to go without a car or you had to buy some crappy hybrid, and now you can buy a Tesla, and isn't that great? That's hedonistic altruism. Mm-hmm. But there is the unintended consequences of of electric cars booming, which is, is good. That's positive. I love electric cars. I don't own one yet, but I do want one um, is there's a battery thing and there's rare minerals that involve in those batteries. And now there's, there's interest that wanna go try to mine those minerals in the deep seabeds, And there's uh, you know, land mining that has all sorts of issues and complicated issues. So, you know, what is 10 moves down the road? What does that look like? And, and that's what the do nothing people Sure,
0: but my retort to that is that everything is iterative. Of course, when you pioneer a new technology, there are downstream implications of that. Some of which are foreseeable and some of which are not. The tote bag is a perfect example of that. The lithium ion battery is another example of that, of course, but we have to move forward to solve these problems. And so these are all steps and we have to address these things as they come. Like it's it's better that, that electric vehicles exist and that they've been created in a way that, that, that you know, is, is aspirational for the consumer, right? Yeah. It's creating demand. They're gonna get cheaper. There's gonna be more and more of them until one day we're gonna wake up and there really are no um, traditional vehicles on the road anymore. Yes, we'll have to deal with the mining application, you know, implications of that, but are we not better off for making these changes don't ask me, ask so, Greta. Yeah, so, G- <laughs> well, I mean, Greta would like it all to be happening much more quickly. By the way, like I got criticized in the YouTube comments. You for did? Well, people thought I was making fun of her. Like I'm on her side. I was like, I was I was sort of, you know, uh, trying to channel her voice. Remember when I was, oh. you know, like talking, oh. um, people thought I was mocking her. I'm not mocking her no. at all. Like she's the one who's holding the hard line and is frustrated that we're not doing this
1: Quickly I just enough. think Greta would 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 not enjoy the phrase hedonistic altruism,
0: right? But but you have to understand the psychology of the human animal, right? right? Like, how are you going to get people to make changes? Well, you have to make that change attractive, right? No, whether yeah. it's the food, whether it's the car that they're driving, whatever it is, like because most people are not going to murder themselves or. Right make the kind of choices that, that Greta is making in her life or that she would wish that more people would make. I so, agree. how do you appeal to people's sensibility to do the right thing? You have to make the right thing, the cool thing, the affordable thing, the attractive thing. And these things unfortunately take time and we're in a race, like we're yeah. in a race to save the planet. My fear is that we can't iterate on these technologies fast enough to uh, keep up with the rate at which we're denigrating the environment. Hmm.
1: And wouldn't, wouldn't we all be better off if we just all laid flat and then consume less resources? Right. I'm, not a, yeah. I'm not a lay flatter, but <laughs> that's the idea. That's the argument, right? If we
0: all just stopped. <laughs> if we all just stopped. Right, like when the, when the like the early pandemic happened and everything stopped for a, a minute. Great and, example. And the skies cleared right. and the pollution, You know. Yeah. Like, yes. That's, I think, where the the
1: you know if we if we just universal human there was wage just kind mass of mass adoption
0: of cynicism, the philosophy, if, and the lie flat movement just intoxicated the global population to such an extent that we no longer just we no longer found it uh, uh, interesting or. Important to do anything.
1: If cynicism became the next political movement, but then chaos would ensue. No, but you, you, the cynics would not would not vote for Trump as a voting block.
0: Yeah, but you wouldn't vote. Ex- Nobody no, would vote. vote. You might vote. You that vote. would be an action. You would have to literally get up and do something. No one's saying you lie that flat. That is anti cynic. <laughs> you don't lie flat this all This is the not time. a functional operating system for society, Adam. Adam the cynic. It's a good thought my, experiment. Yes. If you wanna be, you know, Henry David Thoreau and go to Walden Pond and write about it mm. or think, sit on your parents'
1: I porch. think Henry David Thoreau was actually at Ralph Waldo Emerson's house when he
0: was sitting yeah. in that guest house. That was Walden, Weren't there where, like, somebody was bringing, who is it who told me this? I think Walden Pond was was, literally Emerson's guest house. I think it was Amanda Palmer when she was on the podcast and we were talking about this and she, her point, we were were having a conversation about how nobody, I hope my memory is correct on this. Maybe I have this wrong, but the conversation was around how nobody does anything alone. Like everybody needs support and any victory is a team victory, even Thoreau, like had somebody bring him muffins like when oh, he yeah. was out in the pond like he wasn't out there by himself bro, like he was throw was, was, yeah. was glamping bro <laughs> he was glamping it was a serious glamping situation <laughs> yeah
1: he was on i think he right. was on emerson's property i'm not kidding like i think Ralph Waldo Emerson right. was supporting him. Is that true? Yeah, I, don't I think know that. so. I think uh-huh. Ralph Waldo Emerson was was, yeah. was already wealthy and renowned, uh-huh. and I think Thoreau he admired Thoreau, and I think he was like one of his patrons. Listen,
0: it's 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 easy to be a cynic on 450000 $450, dollars a year. Who, who's is the making, point? Who's making that? I'm just saying, like it's it can it's sort of extravagant. It's sort of uh, is it not? Privileged to say, I'm going to lie down.
1: I don't think these guys are making 450, but uh,
0: I know I'm I'm being I'm I'm exaggerating, but I'm just saying, if you're on your parents' porch or or like, how are you going? How are you gonna? How is this functional?
1: I think the point is it's kind of a monkey rant wrench, so it's not it's not implied to be functional. It's implied as a mirror saying, why are we all doing what we're doing?
0: and for and, that and, and, i for and, that, I celebrate yeah, it, yeah, yeah, because yeah, I think yeah. we all need to have that conversation with ourselves, yeah
1: but and beyond I think that from from based on this, I mean, she's uh, to me it's, it's an incredible essay. I'd love to read more of her work, and uh, maybe it took going home. T- in West Virginia, to have the space and time to write what she really wants instead mm-hmm. of churning out kind of stuff, news cycle stuff. It sounds like she was exhausted by the news cycle. Listen, man, this last week was a news cycle from hell.
0: yeah,
1: um it's 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 not only hard to be in it, it's hard to be hearing it. And imagine producing that all the time if that's what she was doing. I don't know exactly what show references in in this what show she was on, but I um off the top of my head, I don't remember. But just being a part of that, being in that building when all that's going on, it's tough. Mm -hmm. And so she now she gets to write something kind of like trying to wake people up to the fact that you don't have to. It doesn't have, you know, work doesn't have to be a career. Um, It reminds me of someone. You know, we're going to get into the streams of the week, but there's this YouTube YouTuber that I'm just starting to listen to, watch, excuse me, and love. Um, And he's got a YouTube channel called uh, uh, Crime. Pays, but Botany doesn't, and I'll we'll get into it. But he's just like he is an <laughs> a train engineer. He drives freight trains and then like cruises into the desert and checks out plants and just dives in. And it's an incredible deep dive into the flora of wherever you are and um, wherever he is. Like and an
0: engineer in the truest sense, like an engineer of trains. Engineer
1: of cha- trains. So like the idea is, what if what if work what if work didn't have to be careerism? What if work just had to be you you make enough to get by, and then you could do other things to really enrich your life. I think that's what she's saying. Yeah, yeah well, she's not don't, saying I'm, don't I'm get a job. I'm down with that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm down yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, we it's you know we we should be working to live, not living to work. Exactly. Anyway,
1: deep thoughts. <laughs> deep. Deep thoughts,
0: transition into news cycle. Yeah, should we (laughs) tread into shallower shallower waters to talk about the streams of the week? Let's do it. Um, When we last spoke, I was sharing how much I was enjoying uh, the White Lotus. You had a chance to watch this whole thing. Yeah. I gotta say of everything that I've watched in the last year, this has stayed with me the most. I, I think I think about this show every single day. I think it's, a
1: masterwork. I think it's the best TV writing I've seen since Mad Men, Breaking Bad. That whole era. It's pretty amazing. Yeah,
0: it's this incredible. Are we going to spoil it? Let's not. Let's try not yeah, to we spoil sh- it. Yeah, I don't, don't want to spoil it. No spoiler. It. Um, limited series on HBO from the brain of Mike White, who is just an exceptional chronicler of the human psyche in all its strangeness. Um,
1: Credit School of Rock, he was the writer of School of Rock. Yeah, Yeah. School
0: of Rock doesn't really capture what he's about. I mean, his show Enlightenment is probably a better um, touchstone, touch flashpoint for Mm -hmm. kind of his sensibility. Um, And The White Lotus is just this impeccable, incisive dissection of race, class, privilege, colonialism, Mm. um, and done in a really contemporary, modern, and comedic way that uh, you just can't look away from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, what did you think?
1: So I, I agree with you. My favorite thing I just wrote down, I was just kind of sketching notes just now is what I love about it is that nobody is likable. right? And that's, that's not ruining anything, but there's no <laughs> character that's, that's 100% likable, let's put it that way. Maybe there's Certainly one, not. maybe there's one, but I don't even think that that the, the, the young, young guy is. Nobody is likable, and what I love about that is everyone has something that you're like a little cringy about, you know, uh, and and that's great because I'm so sick of of work that makes that there's always some some person who's good and other people are bad. And that's just not the way the world works, mm-hmm. you know. Like everyone has this in them, and to have these gradations of goodness and badness, or or kind of greed and and selfishness and 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 uh, enlightenment, and have them within individual characters—some um, you're going to like more than others, obviously—but nobody is ultimately that likable, and that's what's so delicious about this. Right, and 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 uh, and so I. I applaud Mike White because you don't see a lot of that these days, it's it's much more black and white usually.
0: It's interesting um, how this all came together during the pandemic under a very compressed period of time as a limited series. I wonder what would have happened had he had a runway in the traditional sense where this could go on for multiple seasons in the same location, Mm. Um, given that it was sort of set up to be a one time kind of mini series situation. He has to provide an arc and finality for each of the characters mm. that ends up being making it like as great as it is. Like everybody kind of comes to their ultimate conclusion in a way that really hammers home um, this idea of like class and privilege. Yes. You know, it's set at essentially the Four Seasons in Maui that's called The White Lotus. I mean, the show is called The White Lotus. It's like Mike White you know, the lotus eater, you know, yeah, it's yeah, unbelievable, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's it, so infected with his sensibility in the most beautiful way. And the idea
1: I think is that uh, the subsequent seasons are just gonna be different white lotuses. Yeah, so it's yeah. gonna, so it's, it's it's gonna like, travel. Yeah,
0: in that idea of the four seasons being like a brand, it'll just be another location with a completely new cast. I think there's some, there was some news about how maybe one or two of the characters might carry over. I kind of hope not. <laughs> Armand's gonna get reassigned. I mean, you know, listen, (laughs) every performance in this show is pitch perfect. It's unbelievable across the board. When I think of any of these characters, they just crush it completely. Yes, Um, Armand, you know, if there is kind of like a standout breakaway kind of career defining performance, um, you gotta give it up for Murray Bartlett as as Armand because he just, I mean, chef's kiss especially in the finale with <laughs> what Unbelievable. He does. When he goes off the rails, it's oh. the most delicious viewing experience you can imagine. Unbelievable. And Steve Zahn,
1: I think it's the best thing you'll yeah. ever see Steve Zahn, at least to date. It's an uh, incredible work for him. And then your friend, you said someone you knew or that um, who plays Steve Zahn's wife, I forget oh, Cassidy.
0: No, I mean, yeah. I I don't know her. Okay. Well. I mean, Connie Britton, Connie Britton. Uh, who plays Nicole Mosbacher. Uh, yeah. I mean, she, I knew her a little bit, like when I lived in New York city, right after college, she went to Dartmouth and was friends with a bunch of guys that I ran around with. Um, So, I mean, I haven't talked to her. I wouldn't consider her a friend. She's somebody I've met, you know, I actually met, Steve Zahn when he was like a teenager. I was, oh, I, right, I was living in New York, I was saying. a PA on an independent feature that he was in in the early phases of his career. But I, th- I think like all across the board, everybody's doing their best work from mm-hmm. Mike White all the way down. Um, and it's just kind of an amazing um, dissection in the most contemporary way of, our blind spots as a culture from the perspective of privilege. Mm. You know, just the idea of being at a high-end resort in Hawaii where, uh, you know, at night there's the luau's and the kind of, you know, bring the natives out and make them dance in this kind of Disney-esque, um, uh, you know, performance of, of indigenous tradition. And when you see it that way, you realize how kind of offensive it is. Mm. Um, and the way that every character kind of pivots back to their privilege in the end i mean it 's certainly about race as well, but even um, you know the most kind of performatively woke characters the two teenage girls or young women um, pivot back to their privilege when pressed you know against right. the wall it 's
1: uh you were saying that the 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 portrayal of the Teenagers was like so spot on.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a parent yeah, yeah. of of teenagers, like it's just the archetypes are just pitch perfect. Yeah, and
1: those two actresses really great chemistry. And, oh my god! You know, and and um, yeah,
0: have you ever seen a more, uh, more like invective with the eye roll? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's so unbelievable, right? Like the terror of of those young women. You know, and, and the ire that they carry is just, you know. And there's like great intergenerational
1: repartee and there's other characters and we're not even right. getting the into it. The
0: way that the young women, you know, relate to the parents yeah. and all of that is all and there's like the, accurate.
1: the 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 customer who's like from hell, there's the guest from hell that's in this, you know, that, that the staff has to contend with. There's the, you know, the woman who needs to have a million spa treatments to feel good about her life is there. But all these people, me saying that is not really first of all, that's not a spoiler, but it's also every character is a whole person.
0: Well, I think yeah. I think what makes it great is is despite the flaws that these characters all inhabit in their own way, Mike White writes them with such depth and such affection for them. Like he's still loves these people. Yes. You know, in a certain way, despite their flaws. Yes. And it allows, like you you open this by talking about how none of these these are all terrible people. Yes. Um, but still you kind of root for them. Yes. Right? And Jennifer Coolidge's character ultimately in the end, like, you know, the the whole narrative about how she might invest in 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 this, you know, in this woman's yep. um you know future spa, like to get her out of the context of of, of working at this Resort, you know, it's not gonna work out. Like, you know, that's never gonna happen, right? But ultimately the way that Jennifer Coolidge kind of delivers the verdict of like, I'm not gonna do this is in a way that we can celebrate for her because she's setting a healthy boundary for herself. So even though it's done in a way that's so uncomfortable. It's not not good though. It's not good. No, it's not good at all and yet, there's Jennifer Coolidge's character kind of needed to do so, that for herself, and
1: her and her character is so. At first, you don't even want to look at her, and by the end, you you love her, and it's yeah. It, and it, that's, I mean, she's the scene
0: on the boat with the ashes and all of that yeah. is like she's a genius. It's it's master. She might
1: be, like in terms of. a just the the a comedy actress genius. Like she's been great for many, yeah. many years. Um, I think Mike White has to get full credit for these performances too, because he's able to, obviously he's pushing some amazing buttons mm-hmm. to get these incredible performances. Right, and, and these chemistry. are all
0: actors who who are now given the opportunity with great writing to show how good they actually are. Yeah, yeah that too. You know?
1: The one thing I would say is, uh, because there is that commentary, it's kind of, it's, it, it is explicit, the idea of, indigenous people in a location as prop, even though that there's something to that, that kind of doesn't feel right. Like, you know, everyone has their, has their choice, but there's also some, some, there's also some legacy there, the legacy of colonialism that you have to reckon with. I will say being, having said that, like the local people, the local Hawaiian people in this show are still kind of props, like, like it's not. But that's the point. I don't know. They're
0: they're interchangeable and they're disposable. So when, um, is it Kai, the character Kai, who who pulls off this, attempting to pull this. No (laughs) spoilers, no spoilers. All right, he gets into trouble. And when the shit hits the fan, like that guy just disappears. Right. And that's the point. So you say that's the point. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's, it's purposeful. It's to say that this doesn't really matter, Mm -hmm. you know? And when the two young girls, are you know Paula and what's Olivia. The, Olivia are yeah. having a conversation about this and Olivia's like right. well at least nothing bad happened or something bad could have happened. Right. And Paula has to say no something <laughs> has to remind her like something bad <laughs> did happen. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh yeah, something bad did happen. But does that, that really that does that good. really matter? Yeah. And ultimately Paula pivoting back to now Paula could have done something in that moment, and Paul is like, "I'm I got to go to college, and I'm leaving, and I'm not gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna like pretend this never happened." Right.
1: That's my point. Yeah. Like, like every character, and even yeah, so all the way down the line, um, they all make choices that are you know regrettable, and you're watching it in real time. Yeah. The
0: the one character that has the amazing kind of celebratory arc is is Quinn, the young the young son. Who you know, we're not going to spoil it, but like, he's the only one who kind of breaks free from all of these constraints. Yes, in a positive. He's the one.
1: He's the one that yeah, that Mike White takes care of the most, I think, in terms of his outcome. But but like, um, I mean, you could say his dad too. But but uh, and I you know we 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 don't want to spoil it anymore. But I thought like. It's so interesting to see uh, that Mike White, there's a, there's this whole reality TV aspect mm-hmm. of it. Like, he, you know, he's a reality TV obsessive. One of the bellmen is
0: someone he met on Survivor. Yeah, <laughs> and he went, yeah, he will, he, I mean, he's a legendary contestant on yes. The Amazing Race yeah. and he's obsessed with reality TV. And when you see like Connie Britton's character, like you see a little bit of, uh, the Housewives of, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of inve- you know, vain, like being expressed through that, and those. That's a medium in which you kind of hate these people, but you fall in love with them too. Yeah, and it's confusing.
1: And all of the reality TV medium, you know, it is kind of all like that. Like, and I think that Mike White came in second on Survivor on some Celebrity Survivor
0: or something. Oh, he did. I, I didn't think know, so. I know that. And I think he met. I saw Mike White in Hawaii once. <laughs> did you? Which is weird. Mixed you gotta it very get him meta. on the pod. I would love to have him on. It's, I'd also left, I'd love to have um, Jake Lacey on too. Jake
1: Lacey, who is I think another breakout performance yeah. in this Hollow uh, show. Hello, at your boy. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: amazing rich performance roll, by him. follower. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, it, it, this show is incredible. If you haven't watched it, I guess all we're saying is make time make time to watch it. My boys like loved it. They just want to talk about it like all the time.
1: We started rewatching it. My parents were uh, in town for Asuma's birthday, and uh, we watched the first couple episodes again with them. Uh-huh. And who knows? Maybe we'll keep going. Yeah, it's a rewatchable. How about the score? The, the music spectacular. is
0: unbelievable. It's
1: so full of tension and yeah, and, yeah anxiety, all, all that.
0: Yeah, tropical anxiety.
1: And what's the Saturday Night Live um, alum who comes in as uh, as Shane's Um, mother, Molly
0: Shannon? Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) All time, all time, fingernails on the chalkboard performance. I know, (laughs) but then you understand why Jake Lacey's character is the way that he is, and it allows you to feel the slightest bit of compassion for this very, you know, like sort of, uh, you know, broken human being. And Armand is
1: the all-time anti-hero, like you, you know.
0: I, I mean, thought, Ar- I thought now big- his per- his performance is so legendary in the show that now you're seeing memes of him like everywhere, all mm-hmm. over the internet. Like the whole world just fell in love with this guy, and I hope that his career just explodes as a result of this. Like he should be in everything.
1: He, you know, he has that same kind of comic timing that. Um- what is that, uh, Jojo Rabbit? The writer director. Uh, yeah, doesn't he kind of yeah. have that a, a little bit. bit? Yeah, 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 bit. yeah. Funny and kind of offbeat, and
0: mm-hmm. and. Um, but how he has to switch gears and put on the happy face, <laughs> yes. and then just he goes insane. <laughs> He, he loses
1: it. <laughs> no. As a sober person, did, did you? Because yeah. the idea is he's I mean, sober, and then
0: again, yeah. like, are we are we spoiling it or are we not? Let's just say he goes on one of the most epic relapse, epic benders, you know, benders relapse of benders. all time. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Um, did that hurt you? Just watch it, or were you enjoying? No, you I'm enjoying like, it? I'm I'm with you, brother. <laughs> you know, he got pushed to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I was Good feeling shit. it. Uh. I mean, okay. look, we could talk about this show for hours. Yeah. Um, just go see it or see it in the comfort of your home. Yes, or on um, your Oculus, actually. Like, you can't yeah, watch could it you on do Oculus. For a 360 experience yes. of uh, of the White Lotus. Let's talk about the Val documentary. Dude, go for it. So I, you
1: watched, you saw the first hour of it. I did, We. I, I consume movies in, in chunks now. I, I hate to tell you movie mm. makers, but that's, I am a product of our shortened attention span.
0: Yeah, this Val Kilmer documentary that's on Amazon prime right now, it's called Val. It was so fascinating to watch this. I think most of us have a sense of who we think Val Kilmer is because he's such a you know, icon of, of the screen. And you realize in watching this movie that, that um, Despite the fact that we know he's playing characters in movies, it's almost impossible to disassociate that from who you think the person is. Mm. And my, you know, realization in watching this movie is just how different he is than what I thought he was. I mean, I'd heard stories about him being difficult, and that's kind of the lore. It's like, oh, he's super talented, but he's impossible to work with. And you kind of just leave it at that. And you think about Iceman and and you know Top Gun, and you think about his Jim Morrison portrayal and that's about all I knew about this guy. Iceman, that Bat- he has a Man son Jim Morrison. who's now an actor and has been in some cool movies like Palo Alto. Okay. Um, but I really didn't know that much about him and it's a really beautiful, I won't call it's not really a documentary. It's more an autobiography. It's, it's a version of his life through his perspective. Um, I don't know if he self-funded it or what the kind of Kind of like a kid. Mechanic Stays in the Picture the kind of.
1: Remember that movie? Kid Stays in the Picture. Yeah, but you
0: had you had really legendary documentarians who were yeah. making that. Yeah. And they had a take on 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 their protagonist. Whereas I think Val, although there are directors to this movie, it feels like Val's the one who's at the helm of this. And it's premised on all of this footage that he has. Like a, this guy bought a video camera way before people were buying video cameras yeah. and literally rolled camera on his entire life and has, you know, insane amounts of footage throughout his entire career. In
1: storage, like they actually go to storage. They go to
0: storage and it's like, he's in this giant warehouse and he's unearthing all of these tapes that date back to like the early eighties. Yeah, And the documentary is an attempt to string that together and craft a narrative of this guy's life. And you realize like, he has a very interesting childhood. His brother who was like, his filmmaking partner um, drowns in a swimming pool, uh, having an epileptic seizure, and it has a dramatic impact on, on on young Val's life. And it's really the story of a very sensitive artist. That, that happens right that, when Val gets into Juilliard, I right, think. He, right, right. Yeah. Ju- yeah, yeah. He right. was the youngest person uh, admitted to Juilliard yeah. at the time. Yeah. And really wanted to be a theater actor and wrote this play. When he was at Juilliard, that gets put up, you know, off Broadway, and then they put it up at the Public, I think. Like, and he's got this crazy footage of him backstage yep. on Broadway with Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn when they're they all have to be like twenty three years old or something like that <laughs> yeah. at the time.
1: Yes, It's unreal. They look great. It's it's so fun to yeah. see, and they, I, you know, we don't want to spoil it, but there's a great little back and forth, and um, and then you see him with uh. He talks about how on um, on top gun it goes basically through his over 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 of his, oeuvre. his oeuvre. it goes through like film by film and then intersperses some present day with that because the mm-hmm. idea you know he has been he's had throat cancer surgery and he can't speak without Mm. pressing his throat. Yeah, so he
0: got through the cancer, he's cancer free, but it took a toll on his voice box. And now he has like a tracheotomy and he has to put his finger over the air hole in Mm. order to speak and it's barely understandable. So there's subtitles for every time he talks. And then his son, Jack, whose voice is remarkably like Val's, um, narrates, reads, yeah, narrates voiceover that was written by Val, and she's and and he's fed fantastic, and and th-
1: so I'm left with kind of three things. There's the obviously the footage is is number one, and his life story is very mm-hmm. interesting, but I'm also interested in how beautiful his relationship seems to be with his children, and obviously this yeah. is a documentary, but. You you wouldn't get that kind of collaboration unless there was. I mean, he even lives next door to his daughter, yeah, who's an adult.
0: Yeah, it's and, very it's very touching and heartwarming. Yeah.
1: and then there's the idea of overcoming a horrible health crisis that he says he you know he sounds terrible but he feels great. This is kind of paraphrasing. And he seems to have made peace with it. Yeah, and then there's this some but then within all that is the artist himself and the the footage. Where he's in um an acting workshop with peter Ma- Moss mm-hmm. and where basically he gives a he gives i think he does a Hamlet monologue and the acting coach is pushing him saying like you know what what was that choice why was that why did you make that choice he's well, he's basically saying, you know I never had the urge to kill myself um so I don't know what that's like, so I did x, y and z, and he's like the, the teacher is basically saying you have had it. You know. It, and there's this idea of creation that kind of hit home for me as a writer. You don't have to have actually had it to explore the feeling. Mm-hmm. You don't actually have, there's no feeling, there's, no, there's nothing that has happened on this earth that has not happened to you. That's what he's basically positing. right? Whether how true that is, I'm not gonna debate. I just think there's something beautiful in the creative zone of that mm-hmm. and giving permission to inhabit a space uh, on you know personally, um, even something you haven't experienced, mm-hmm. there's something there. Uh, that's what makes actors great, I think, and uh, and certainly there's something there for all creative people to think about.
0: Yeah, I thought that was cool. Yeah, that is cool.
1: And then the audition tapes think, for the doors and all that.
0: Oh, I know yeah. the way that he kind of went the extra mile to audition for all of these parts by creating his own basically mini movies yeah. of him auditioning. fail, failed. audition for Goodfellas. Yeah, fail. And they're not just like him talking to camera, like he creates a little movie. So he fails at getting the Henry Hill part
1: in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. He fails at getting the Matthew Modine part for Full Metal Jacket. So Ray Liotta gets him, Matthew Modine gets him. And then he sends it to, to become Jim Morrison and it clicks. And yeah. they're like, but otherwise he would not have gotten the part. This is after he's already been in some, some yeah, yeah. big movies. Yeah. So, it's so interesting, like how you have to keep fighting. That's another thing to take away.
0: Yeah, and also um, the challenges of, you know, being a movie star Mm. stuck in the body of a guy who's fundamentally, you know, a sensitive artist. Like Mm. he talks about being, I don't know if you got to this part, but what it was like for him to be Batman and how challenging it was and the pressure to, you know, kind of, be a big movie star when he was interested in parts that weren't coming his way, and I think within that there is this conversation about you know how difficult he was, and they they address it, but they don't really give it. I would have I would have felt better had there been a real honest reckoning with that kind of um, narrative about his past, and had him like talk to camera and. Mm. You know, acknowledge what's true about that or rebut what's not true about that, because I think that's that's kind of what you know because we're all walking around or anybody who knows anything about them is kind of walking around with a certain impression. they do deal with it. Robert Downey jr. kind of dismisses it. They were in kiss kiss bang Bang together, right. Um, but I felt like I wanted a little bit more you know kind of like real like i'm at the i'm you know i'm 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 done with my that part of my career. Like, here's how I reflect back on that. And here's what I would have done differently. Or here's where I was misunderstood. Because it isn't a documentary in which people are talking to camera and sharing their perspective of him. It's just archival footage and then following him around as he's doing whatever he's doing. And I think within that, there is a sadness because Mm -hmm. this guy, you know, lost his voice and Mm -hmm. could no longer do the thing that he loves to do. And now he's, you know, reduced to going to Comic-Con and signing posters and he talks about how he had to make peace with that and find like gratitude in, you know, spending time with people who 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 you know are fans of his, mm-hmm. and how there's beauty in that as opposed to looking at it like, oh, well, this is the bottom of the barrel now that I have to do this, mm. and that's uplifting in and of itself. But you see a guy who had so much more inside of him yet to be expressed. That will never be expressed in that medium, but it's compelled him to reinvent himself as a visual artist. And now he paints, and he's mm-hmm. got this studio space, and he's opened it up to other artists, and it's birthed this whole other kind of. I mean, he's you know, also he was an Adonis, and now
1: he's like rooted. right, and and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah to yeah. like yeah. have to
0: reckon with your ego in that regard yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. I think is interesting. So, I don't know. I thought it was beautiful. Like I, I you know, I you do. You know, it's not the definitive word on Val Kilmer because it is his perspective on his own life, and it should be it should be consumed and enjoyed with that in mind, um, not as like, I you know, because you can be like, you know, is this the real Val Kilmer? I mean, this is the Val Kilmer that he wants us to see. Right. And I enjoyed it very much. And I, I left that documentary deeply touched and kind of in love with the guy.
1: But you could say the same thing of the Michael Jordan doc, you know, documentary series, you know, it was, it was made by someone else with a point of view, but it was obviously with Michael Jordan's tacit mm-hmm. approval. And there was nothing in there that Jordan and Kobe Bryant had a documentary. And I, I love Kobe rest his soul, uh, but like, his book I think didn't reckon with everything and you know there's there's arguments for all of these kinds of yeah uh, doesn't mean it's not worth watching because there is something there for you right yeah
0: all right check it out cool what else do we want to talk about
1: uh, the alpinist is coming out September 7th I believe is the and then it's in theaters that's a premiere and I think it's in theater shortly after that it's the new Red Bull climbing documentary by one of the producers of the Don Wall, which is uh, was the Tommy Caldwell um, mm-hmm. uh, story of them climbing the Don Wall. He he and his partner, um, and this one follows marc Andre Leclerc, and the, basically the idea he's a Canadian that no one really had heard of, twenty three year old, and he is a free soloist, but I also free solo high alpine ice climbing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the movie starts with. I mean I, I watched it's a beautiful movie. Um the filmmaker is Peter Mortimer. Um, and basically it starts with Alex Honnold's voice saying is there someone out there that you uh, that you admire. This is during the press of all around free solo cuz you know yeah. Alex has blown up so huge and he cites Marc Andre Leclerc as someone to watch and cuz he's this guy no one's heard of doing stuff that like even Alex is like wow. And The footage is absolutely spectacular seeing him because he's using equipment, but with Mm -hmm. sometimes with no ropes, climbing waterfalls with no ropes, with like just a blade in in like a centimeter blade into ice and hanging off with one arm and just how slow, but also personal you have to move to keep climbing up some of this. Uh, The kind of third act revolves around his amazing Tori Egger climb which is uh, the first person to solo up Tori Egger in, um, in Patagonia during winter. And he uses ropes on that one. Um, and so you know you kind of see that happen there's a failed attempt and he has to come down in the middle of a blizzard during avalanche con- conditions and then he mm-hmm. he he tries to get up again and then you know he if you look up Mark Andre you realize he's no longer with us and it gets into that as well um, but his whole story of being um, from a young kid wanting to become this climber and then doing it and living in a tent with in the woods with his girlfriend Brett Harrington he's still the dirtbag climber it's not like it's poster. Right. Bag. Yeah, it's, it's
0: current. There's a purist. I mean, I haven't yeah. seen the movie yet, but from what I know of this guy, I mean, he's the purest purist. Like you yeah. watch Free Solo and you think, could you be any more more purist than 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 Alex? And here's a guy who is living in even more yeah. kind of you know dirtbag purist experience because he's doing such death-defying things and really doesn't care if anyone knows about it or sees it. Like mm. it's purely for the act of doing it. Some of the best
1: Climbing footage you'll ever want to see. If you loved Free Solo, if you loved Don Wall, you will love this. And Mm -hmm. um, it definitely belongs in conversation with those three. It's, you know, I think uh, for most people, uh, Free Solo obviously looms above all of them. There's a reason for that. You know, you have Jimmy Chin, an incredible cinematographer, photographer. Um, on the wall with them, you know. So this is a little bit different than that. There are great climbers following Marc Andre mm-hmm. around, but sometimes they lose track of him because he doesn't want to be on camera until he's done the pure thing. So there's that element of it, and that you have the filmmaker struggling with trying to locate him, which is yeah. interesting. But it's it's not the same kind of collaboration, right? Um, but but they he's are super rec- young too, yeah, right? Twenty three. Yeah, twenty three. Wow. I look forward to checking that out. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful movie. Cool.
0: Yeah. Um, all right, man, let's, uh, let's pivot here. I think we did, we did streams of the week. Yep, we streamed it. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend, Amanda Decadene, is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce Oh, you know what we should talk about? What's up? We need to. I mean, this is related to Streams of the Week. We gotta talk about the latest in Matt Fury and <laughs> news from the world of feels good, man. I, I feel like Matt Fury just uh Like this is the craziest the of, turn of events let's go. ever for this let's guy. Let's go.
1: Well, you set it up. Well, I uh he I, there's an NFT. Someone tried to create a Pepe the Frog.
0: Well, first of all, okay. let's say we talked about Feels Good Man many times on the show. Yes. We had the filmmakers on, on the program. So if you're not familiar, you should check out that podcast, but essentially it's a documentary about this guy, Matt Fury, who is the artist, comic book artist behind this character, Pepe the Frog, that was then co-opted by the alt-right and became a symbol of hatred and you know all kinds of insanity that ensued. And the documentary chronicles Matt's attempt to re-secure kind of sovereignty over this character, yeah. this frog, this green frog that ended up in all these Twitter bios and you know symbolically <laughs> means something that he never intended yeah. to try to, you know, regain that or 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 to take it back and uh, redefine it in the through the lens of like his original intentions. And so what happened with this NFT drop? So, yeah, walk you, you sorry, I interrupted you. Go for it.
1: Well, um, my understanding was there there was he was, it wasn't his drop, right? It was like, no. so someone tried to put together a Pepe the Frog NFT. And there was Well, a... there's
0: more than that. There's like a whole, there's sad frogs district. Like there's this okay. whole project um, in which it's a NFT, you know, marketplace that, that was listed as officially verified. Meaning they had the rights to kind of offer up all of these NFTs that were kind of Pepe, you know, uh, related or adjacent?
1: Kind of like Goblin versions of Pepe, right?
0: I guess. Yeah. You know, I'm not like an expert in all of this. I mean, this is all based on an article, a Vice article that we'll share on the show notes.
1: And there was uh, so basically, the Sad Frog District netted four million dollars in training volume. A medium price of four hundred fifty dollars each, right? In For,
0: ether per sad frog, yeah. In ether, whatever. The, yeah, yeah, Ethereum. Ethereum, okay. which is like the currency of choice in the NFT space. There you go. And Fury, how did he? How did he? Well, he's got these lawyers it. now because he's been on this campaign to you know resecure the rights to his original creation. Yeah. So he issued, uh, you know, basically a copyright takedown. That you know, Open had to acknowledge and and respect. So this was you know basically shut down that whole kind of trading uh, set. You know, Sad Frog District, Sad Frog's District trading. I'm probably butchering this completely because I'm not. steeped in this world, but essentially it shut all that down, right? And where does that money go back?
1: Does it have to flow back? Well, that's the
0: thing, if you read this article, like it's controversial, because a lot of the people that were trading in these things had spent money for these things and they're out of, now is their investment um, worth nothing now? It's worthless now.
1: It seems like the marketplace should have to pay There's all this
0: carnage, right? And so there's blowback on fury, like how dare you do this, but ultimately, he, you know, I'm siding with Matt Fury. Like this is his creation. These people were out creating artwork based on his IP and profiting off of it. And he should have say over whether, I mean, if you went out and made a bunch of NFTs with Mickey Mouse, you you don't think Disney's gonna go after you?
1: Also, fuck your bullshit NFT environmental like draining bullshit, (laughs) all right? Like let let Adam the cynic rule on this. Who cares about your $500 NFT bullshit frog nobody wants?
0: Okay, boomer. The NFT thing—I I don't even begin to understand what's going on here. But I can tell you that it's real, and I a lot of people real. are like making money and I you know. know doing all kinds of stuff here. There's a lot of doing. Eludes my ability to understand, but is certainly a thing. But I celebrate Matt Fury taking a stand for his creation. Me too. Um, you know, getting it back, uh, and not for nothing profiting off of it. Now he's like making millions of dollars after <laughs> Wait, all of this. Is he gonna make that Finally, money? Is he getting that money? Well, he's offering up NFTs of, of Pepe and he's making money as he should off of this. Okay, so he's doing his own NFTs. Yeah. So um, where is it in this article? Uh, this article is pretty long, but um, yeah, he's, uh, there was one that went for like 4 million bucks or something like that. It's crazy.
1: Well, Matt Fury. Well done, my friend. So good for him. You deserve it. Yeah. Although it's still an NFT. I'm not sure
0: I'm in favor <laughs> well, of it. Um, yeah, the blowback here is interesting. But anyway, it's good to see Matt Fury doing well, I guess yes. is the point of even yes. bringing this he up. He took to a lot of garbage. If, I know. Um so that's cool. You know, we've been joking about how you come here right after you finish your shift at Ben and Jerry's yes. and there's a lot of speculation as to whether you actually work at Ben and Jerry's or not. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna say with finality that you don't, I do although not. there's a bit of um back to cynicism. Yes. Cynicism in the in the popular vernacular, uh-huh. being cynical about somebody who would work at Ben and Jerry's.
1: Well, I was more being cynical about my choice in tie-dye wear. Yeah. But the joke was that like, I'm wearing this tie-dye shirt that looks like a Ben and Jerry's tie-dye shirt because it's really colorful versus mm. the kind that's like the cool kind that everyone's but is wearing Is there now.
0: not a, a thinly veiled layer of like, just uh, uh, snarkiness about like working a job at an ice cream parlor?
1: Yeah, there is, Right, there is. There's a little elite cultural elitism, West Coast elitism sure. going on. Inner
0: stage left ice cream, TikTok. <laughs> Are you familiar with ice cream TikTok? I, I, Adam I, am, now. I am now. You are now. I am now. So I knew nothing about this until friend of the pod, friend in real life, <laughs> Joanne Molinaro, the the Korean vegan, yes, uh, responded to our snarky back and forth about you <laughs> either working at Ben and Jerry's or not working at Ben and <laughs> yes. Jerry's by alerting us to the fact that there's a guy on TikTok who works at an ice cream parlor and mounts a camera yep. basically you know, in front of his face, like his phone, so it's facing the ice cream and serves ice cream to people and has a, accumulated like 10 million followers and is making- Dylan LeMay. Yeah, um, which is insane. And, and he's then, now got
1: 2 million subs, I think on YouTube. Does he? Yeah, I think, let me look it up right now.
0: So then um, that turned me to, whoops, I gotta turn that off, I don't wanna get, Yep. in trouble here. Sorry about that. Um, my friends Colin and Samir, who are YouTubers who do a really you know cool show, everybody should subscribe to them. They're great. Um, they did a video about this called "The Wildly Lucrative World of Ice Cream TikTok," and it's about Dylan Lemay yep. and just this trend. 1. Um,
1: 1.85 million subs on YouTube, and it's because YouTube has gotten into short form video because yeah. of TikTok. They're like getting pushed right. by TikTok to to get shorts, and so he's he's tapped into that. Colin and Samir are extremely intelligent. Like no, they're great. They, they really know how to handicap the world of creators, explain mm-hmm. the business behind it in a really transparent and, yeah. in a, and thoughtful way. Yeah. They, they like their subjects. It's clear, which is good. There's, mm-hmm. not a, there's no cynicism involved there unless it's being watched by me. No, I really liked the video. The one thing I'd say is like even their merch, like they do an advertisement for their merch and they talk about how they sold like three thousand or I forget what the number was, but they made fifteen grand off mm-hmm. their merch. And I and um, I would just say I love Colin Samir, but just say no to merch because we don't need more merch in the world. There's enough merch. Oh, yeah, I know. The cynic. I know Adam rearing the Adam
0: the Even if we Adam the Cynic so says, So I just shared say on no Instagram that that uh that, friend of the pod Brogan Graham, friend of Skolnick (laughs) Brogan Graham dropped by the studio the other week. Brogan. Semi-unannounced, Yes. he was in town for a brief period of time and he sat in your seat Mm. and he said, is this Adam's seat? He did. Yes.
1: And he wore, and
0: I put on his shirt, like I took a piece of tape, black tape and I wrote Skolnick on it (laughs) and put it on. And you said, this is gonna be the new merch line. That was gonna be my new merch line. So even if we created merch, with like a, a version of black tape that said Skolnick on it, you're not supportive of that. Well,
1: here's the thing: like, if we're gonna do merch, you could do like the hashtag swim
0: mat, team swim mask thing, which would yeah. be
1: cute for our for right. your our listeners
0: and your fans. The problem with merch is it just, it it create it does create a lot of waste. Like, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's basically you know buying into this fast fashion kind of gestalt of how clothing is manufactured and then quickly. Um, kind of discarded yes. that we're trying to opt out of. So, I completely understand that. And my wife having been uh, a fashion designer in a past life has explained to me at length, like just how much waste being in fashion causes. So, I think there is an environmental footprint to this whole yes. merch thing, as lucrative as it is for these creators. And listen, I don't begrudge any creator who's trying to make a living. And I think Colin and Samir are fantastic at what they do. I. I think they should have millions and millions of subscribers, especially anybody who's interested in the creator creator economy. Like you said, they do a great job of kind of um, canvassing that and and making understandable kind of what's happening online in terms of trends. And they do it in a very accessible way. And they're both great filmmakers and they're great human beings. I've gotten to know them a little bit. And I think they're super cool guys. If they had millions and millions of subscribers, maybe they wouldn't have to do merch or maybe they would just sell more merch. There's no don't have know. to do with merch. Yeah. But there is this thing where if you're a creator online that merch is like, you know, what you do.
1: Well, there, there, so there's an unironic, so, so. And listen,
0: uh, we've sold merch, I have t-shirts and you know, we sell certain These guys things, are
1: creators, they're creator enthusiasts, right? Mm-hmm. So So they're gonna look at a creator, even like Dylan or whoever it is with from an enthusiast perspective, which yeah. is good. Um, they're not looking at it from the Adam the cynic perspective that no. is vaguely sad that people are sitting around watching someone scoop ice cream. Even though I like the idea of ex- educating people about this interesting kind of ice cream from the Philippines. I think it was Uba, it was that they were talking about. And even though I like the color and all of that, I get it. But I also don't get it. Like, Like do we need to be like, why are people watching that?
0: Well, that's a bigger question,
1: yeah. right? Why are Clearly we watching he's that?
0: doing something that people are responding to. I know, but. So the question is why are they responding to, lot, to that? Why are, What is the need that's being met right. by this guy serving ice cream? And maybe it's just, we need a little bit of light good news. I don't know. One thing that was interesting that Colin and Samir
1: pointed out was that um, he's so TikTok barely pays these guys. Like he has 10 million subscribers, but it was something like he yeah. he alluded to it low seems six like figures. If you
0: have 10 million people following right. what you're doing, making a living shouldn't be a problem. And he's making a living.
1: He's making like 120 grand a year, according to like the estimates that like mm-hmm. based on that, that video that but you'll But commanding
0: to. the attention of 10 million people is much more valuable than that. So
1: then he did one drop on Snapchat and he, it sounds like he made close to that with just one video from Snapchat. So Snapchat's creative creator space offers more money, and obviously, YouTube is going to be more um, lucrative for him mm-hmm. at 1.85 million subscribers and climbing. And he's he's looking in New York for space. So he's so the whole idea is he works at Coldstone. So the joke yeah. the me living working at, at Ben and Jerry's and how ha how funny that is and Joanne saying, How about this guy who actually works at Coldstone?
0: And has ten million and, and people who care mo- about him scooping ice cream every day.
1: But pretty soon he will no longer work at Coldstone. <laughs> right. Because uh <laughs> at the time I think he's only now working there two days a week. It's in LA and he's move I think he's moving to New York and opening his own space and gonna create his own Flavors and he's going to have like celebrity. Like he's going to have crabs. a retail yeah. ice cream place. Yes. yes. It's so going to continue
0: in to do the ice cream thing. He can't like let go of that. You right? can't stop it.
1: It's like, it's like JVN still has to do hair occasionally.
0: Right. Yeah. But this
1: guy was still has to make, I think he really wants to make ice cream. Mm. You know, he really wants right. to make ice cream. So he loves ice cream. What's cool about him, what I loved most about is listen, watching Dylan was that. He's dreamt about owning an ice cream shop since he was a little kid. So this is like- It's authentic. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. So that's what I liked about him. Um, I'm right. joking. And the, and the merch thing is just funny. Like it, I, I didn't realize how little you actually had to sell to make good money. Like they talked about, they, they tell you, they, they made 15 grand by selling, I forget what the number was. I think it was like 300 something items. Mm. That's, how, that's why people do merch. Yeah. Cause it's don't have to sell that many. And, um, but to me, I just was wondering, I'm like, well, do we need that? That's yeah,
0: all. I know, I feel you. Yeah. Let's do some listener questions. Oh,
1: we're rounding third base. We are.
0: Listener questions. We're gonna land this prop seaplane. You know where we're going first? Where is that? Manitou Springs.
2: Hey, Rich and Adam. This is Annie from Manitou Springs, Colorado. I love the pod, and you can absolutely use us in the show. My question for you guys is about combating self-sabotage. I found in my life that this has been a pattern for me, whether it's sabotaging my vegan diet, relationships, exercise, or other efforts I make for self-improvement. My question for you is, what advice do you guys have on this? Or do you currently or have you ever dealt with this self-sabotage beast? Thanks for all you guys do and which. I've been listening to you for years and you've gotten me through many long training runs. So thanks for the constant inspiration. Cheers, you guys, take care, bye-bye.
0: Thank you for that question, Annie. That's a big one. Um, I have a history with self-sabotage, do you? You just seem too grounded. Does smoking too much pot count for that? Well, only if you're doing it purposefully to ruin your life. What about if it's unconscious yeah, I guess you can you can unconsciously self sabotage yourself yeah, yeah, of yeah, course yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know unpacking this is complicated, but ultimately self-sabotage has to do with a deep-seated belief that you're undeserving of good things, hmm. right like if you think that you're not worthy, then when you approach something good in your life, you will Create drama to destroy it, to adhere to this narrative or this story that you tell yourself about yourself and your lack of deservedness. Um, I think it's something that uh, is rooted in in, of course fear of failure. like if you sabotage yourself, then you have an excuse, right like if you self, if you if you conduct some self-sabotage, then you can say, well, you know, I didn't really try, or you know, uh, you're not really putting, you're opting out of putting yourself on the line. Um, But it's also about fear of success, just the same. Like, what would it say about the story that you tell yourself about who you are if you actually succeeded? And that for many people is scarier than failure, like Hmm. the fear of success, Hmm. I think. Um, And so I think getting behind. The urge or the you know the compulsion to self sabotage your life requires unpacking the root of that belief and deconstructing what led you to believe that you're not deserving of good things that you lack deservedness and I think to do that um, you need to perform an inventory of your life and identify the stories that defy that narrative, like think of all the times where good things did happen or you were deserving of love or whatever it is that you feel like you're you're lacking and then moving forward is all about performing esteemable acts because self-esteem is a result of the performance of esteemable acts it's a it's a muscle it's a habit just like anything else but it is a bit of a titanic situation and it's you know to turn it around like you're going to have to you know practice this for long periods of time mm. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Unpacking unpacking the stories that lead you into that pattern of behavior, then figuring out how to correct that action or where how to avoid those kinds of patterns. Yeah, and, then and it begins with awareness. Up, if you slip up, not beating yourself up. Right. For having slipped up. Right,
0: So, Annie has awareness that she's doing it. A lot of people don't, they're just doing it and they're not even aware that they're sabotaging their life. So, at least Annie has this awareness. So, I think rooting yourself in that awareness around the behavior so that when you're doing it, you can understand, okay, this is what I'm doing. Then it is what you just said, which is not beating yourself up about it, trying to figure out why you were doing it in the moment, identifying that fear and then, Figuring out what the contrary action is and taking that action as un- uncomfortable as it is, because I think um, it's about breaking the pattern of this self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you feel like you're undeserving, then you perform the self-sabotage, and then you create the reality that affirms the belief. Right. So you have to break. There's a there's a pattern that you have to break, and I think humans being creatures of habit and creatures of pattern, like Forming new patterns is difficult and mm-hmm. uncomfortable, um, but uh, I think yeah. that's you know the process of of trying to you know change that for yourself. Yeah, I think you're right. I think most people who
1: self sabotage are totally unconscious that yeah. they're even doing it. So right. you're right about that. So we'll they just fact do it,
0: that, and they'll yeah. be like, and then and there's a weird kind of rush or release with affirming the narrative. Like, see, see, yeah. it happened again. Yeah. I'm a victim or you know no, you know I never get the promotion I be loved or I can't or yeah see yeah. another person broke up with me yeah. like you create that reality so that you can um double down on that narrative and there's a perverse kind of like not euphoria but um maybe it's a you know I'm sure there's a neurochemical release involved yeah. in that uh that, that you know, anchors you in that. And I think really you know, concretizes or, or makes it even more difficult to break out of it.
1: The fear of success thing is something I always have a heart. I've heard it before, but I'm like, no, I, I, I'm much more worried about failing than a, a, like fear mm. of success. Like what story would you tell I mean, I've heard that before. I don't quite what identify with it. What would it look it? like if yeah. you
0: actually got what you wanted? And that's frightening. What if my life got bigger? Maybe right. I'm not ready to handle that. It's right. scary, it's intimidating. You think that's mostly subconscious or do you think that's yeah, I think conscious? It's to, I think it's mostly subconscious. Mostly
1: subconscious. Interesting. Anyway,
0: that's a really good question. It's a great question. Let's go to Brian from London. All right.
2: Hi Adam, hi Rich. Uh, my name's Brian Marshall and I'm calling from London in the United Kingdom. Uh, okay to play this message. Um, Uh, i I have a question Um, i have a hundred kilometer ultramarathon coming up in three weeks time i have been training hard for this Uh, i've been training probably now for 18 months last year i completed a 60 kilometer self-supported run which was a challenge but i guess the biggest dilemma i have I'm really looking for some tips, guidance, is just trying to figure out how my body is going to respond to the extra distance between the 60 that I've already done and the 100. Um, trying to focus on nutrition and hydration throughout. I've had quite a journey to get this far. I had my own issues with alcohol over 10 years ago. In fact, uh, I did contract septicemia and was in intensive care for and a half weeks and actually flatlined twice so literally 10 years ago i was learning to walk again and here i am embarking on a 100 kilometer run in memory of my late brother who unfortunately passed away at the age of 25 from a inoperable brain tumor so running for the brain tumor charity and looking to raise some good money but would welcome any thoughts advice guidance uh, to help me achieve this thanks guys Appreciate it. Wow, that's
0: how, quite a story. How great is Brian. that guy? Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, first of all, you know, uh, congrats on on making those changes. I mean, that's quite an arc, Brian, and something to be celebrated in its own right. And and sorry about your brother. Um, I can't imagine what that experience must have been like mm. uh, for him to pass away at such a young age. Um, as to you know, the ultra marathon question, look, you know, if you can do 60 kilometers, you can definitely do a hundred. I mean, that's kind of what I always say. Uh, You've already done 60, you know what you're capable of and you've been training for 18 months for this hundred. Like, I'm not worried about you. I feel like you're being perhaps a little bit neurotic about this because if you've been properly training and working out your hydration and your nutrition and practicing that in your training and increasing, you know, the volume of your running, to uh, you know, prepare your ligaments and your joints, as well as your muscles and your heart and your lungs for enduring hundred kilometers. Like I'm pretty confident that you're gonna be just fine. In terms of the training, it sounds like you've got that sussed already. I mean, the training changes are pretty basic. It's just a slow expansion of, of volume and then figuring out your hydration and nutrition strategy, which you should be practicing in your training so that there's no, um, you know, uh, uh, unexpected things that are gonna happen with respect to that um, during the race, or or if unexpected things happen, you'll at least have some options to pivot to because you've worked it out in your training. Um, I don't have to tell you that doing a run like this is not about going fast, it's about keeping going. It's about persistent endurance. As I said, in Finding Ultra, in the words of Chris Houth, the prize does not go to the fastest person. It goes to the person who slows down the least and you're training your body to slow down as little as possible over the duration of this day. Um, Charlie Engle, so the guy who just won Leadville, uh, he averaged a 10 minute per mile pace, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that fast. Most people who are runners can, <laughs> can run a 10 minute mile, right. but can you do it all day? That's really what you're training for. I mean, Charlie Engle talks about this all the time. If you could run 10 minute, 10 minute miles uh, all day long, then you can not only win bad water, you can like crush the record. Mm. So, it's not about running fast, it's about training your body to be able to stay upright and moving forward. Um, as efficiently as possible. So I think the real leap here from sixty to a hundred for Brian is a mental leap, um, as much as it is much more than it is a, a physical leap. Right. And you know the the subtext in in my sense is the subtext in Brian's question is him trying to talk himself into believing that he's capable of doing this. Did you get that?
1: Yeah, I there? could I could see it. I mean, how might how, how, What's kind of to train from sixty to a hundred like? What's the biggest chunk of running you think he'd have to do I mean, at I once? That,
0: I think that he, you know, he's gonna have to do some race approximation uh, weekends or doing back to back big runs so that he learns how to run when he's tired or maybe you know, running in the middle of the night. So he's used to running when he's sleep deprived, acclimating the body and the mind to those sorts of things. Like but a there's marathon only so and then much,
1: another marathon the next day. Yeah,
0: maybe something like that. I mean, there's only so much that you can run without getting injured. Yeah. So, there's a cap on the volume. And once you've reached that cap, and I don't know where he's at because he wasn't specific about his training, it's just mental. You know, it's understanding that your body is more capable than, you know, we allow ourselves to believe and it's a thing, you know, it goes back to the Goggins thing of the 40% rule, right. like you're capable, you know, when you think you're you're done, you're you've only tapped into 40% of what you're truly capable of, and that really is a mental game. So, it's about cultivating that belief that you can do it. And and the process of culting that, cultivating that belief happens during training. Like when you have a breakthrough run or you do like a big block and you get through it, um, that starts to root you in this sense that it is possible, but you've done a 60, so you know, you can do that. Um, this isn't that much crazier than mm-hmm. that. And then it's about when you're in the race, managing the pain, managing the lows that you're gonna face, managing the unforeseen variables that are gonna kick up and throw you off your plan and being emotionally resilient to, you know, weather that and manage that because things change. You're gonna feel like shit. You're gonna wanna quit. You've got to train your mind and your body to continue to move forward and push through so that you have some tactile experience with the fact that these things change. Just because you feel lousy now doesn't mean you're always gonna feel lousy. And and you know, becoming persistent and and resilient and flexible and and all the things that you want in your toolbox going into this race and i think your biggest asset perhaps when your back is up against it and you're you reach that point where you think you can't go any further is that you have a really strong why you have your brother and this charity and it's obviously very meaningful and authentic to you so you know when all is lost pivot to the why and remind yourself why it is that you're doing this. And I think your why is so strong that that's going to elevate you and carry you through whatever obstacles you face, you know, across this finish line. Beautiful.
1: Well said.
0: Anything to Good. add to
1: that? Not really no. I've never run a 30 nor a 60 unless you count the four by.
0: But you ran 80 miles this month and swam 10, 10 kilometers. 10 no 10, 10 miles. miles. Yeah. So
1: Thanks. I'm go. no Brian Marshall from London though.
0: No, you're not. Cause only Brian Marshall from London is Brian Marshall <laughs> from London.
1: <laughs> That's could be a t-shirt. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, ready. Let's go to Scott from Vermont. Only Scott from Vermont is Scott from Vermont.
2: Hey Adam and Rich, really appreciate the podcast. love listening to you both. It's my favorite podcast of the week I get to listen to. Real quick question is, when you're exercising and breathing, what's the best way to breathe? I've read a lot of information on nasal breathing. Um, I'm trying to get the hang of in through the nose, out through the nose, but I'm struggling with that. Is it in through the nose, out through the mouth, in through the nose, out through the mouth? What's the best way to breathe? Again, Scott from Vermont, really appreciate your podcast each week and keep up the great work. Yes, it's okay to play this on the air. Thank you.
0: Um, thank you, Scott. I you know if i 'm being honest, I struggle with how to answer this question um, because on the one hand, like I appreciate his desire to try to understand how to um, you know, kind of go to go the extra mile and and take advantage of certain techniques that can be beneficial and there's certainly a lot that has been studied and written about when it right. comes to the benefits of nasal breathing. Essentially, you know, it helps um, achieve what's called the Bohr effect which okay. is about increasing your body's ability to tolerate carbon dioxide through slower, more steady breathing. Um, and I think practicing nasal breathing when you're training is a good kind of like reflex to develop and perhaps it will help you um, uh, utilize oxygen more efficiently and make you a better athlete over time. But I also think that um, I mean I don't know you know where Scott is at in terms of his uh, success as an athlete or his accomplishments or his experience et cetera. Um, but I don't know any elite athletes who are like I only breathe through my nose. Certainly when I'm swimming I don't. Right. Isn't that and thinking, I don't that- and when I'm running I mean I try to inhale through my nose and exhale through my mouth. But when I'm really up against it, I'm I'm trying to get oxygen into my lungs however I can. Mouth breather. Yeah, and so part of me, like my resistance to this, is that it feels like the final one percent on the on the mountain when we should really be focusing more on fundamental stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, are we are you are you training as hard as you can? Otherwise, or how's your nutrition? How's your rest? How's your sleep? Like the big, you know, kind of foundational aspects of of optimizing performance. Focus on honing those in first. Stuff like nasal breathing I think is great and it's a good kind of practice, but only if it's on top of an already strong foundation. If you're focusing on nasal breathing when other stuff that is more important to be paying attention to isn't exactly locked in, then I feel like it's sort of like taking vitamins when you know, you're eating fast food every day.
1: So Nicholas Ramirez, Catalina swim run champion, Mm -hmm. Attila. Uh, world champion, I think one time, and uh, is in the next week. They're going to line up again.
2: Yeah, he had right.
1: when he, he he still sends me some training plans now, or we just restarted. But at times, what he likes us to do is during the warm up. Whether if you're doing a run, he always has a 10 to 20 minute warm up involved. So it's usually 15 or 20 minutes. So if it's going to be an hour, 75 minute run, it's going to be a 20 minute warm up. So that's zone two, mm-hmm. and part of that is uh, he likes you to nasal breathe. Yeah. So I think his argument, this is not me talking, it's him. I mean, I understand this is coming from probably the James Nestor book, Breathe, where he gets into the power of it. And I've Uh, tried
0: this also, I should say like, Um, I've tried to do nasal breathing when I sleep because I wake up in the middle of the night and my mouth is wide open right. and I'm, I'm all dry. Out. So, I've put tape on. You like did I've, the James Nestor experiment. Yeah, I put tape on my mouth yeah. so that I can focus on nasal breathing when I sleep because it, the, you know, there's like a, a sympathetic, parasympathetic right. nervous system kind of resetting that goes on. Um, and then I wake up in the morning and the tape's off and my mouth is wide open. <laughs> which shows me how much I need this. So I'm not dismissive of this in any way. Like I understand that this is, you know, something that we should be, you know, practicing and paying attention to. Um, Well, But I question like how, anyway, go ahead. Yeah,
1: I was gonna finish. Nicholas says basically just do it then. So it's Mm -hmm. in through the nose, out through the nose, but just in the first warm up period, 10 minute, maybe 15 minute, obviously if you miss a breath and you have to go to the mouth and it's no big deal and you'll find it's harder to keep that pace doing uh, nasal breathing. But after that, when you're really running and trying to accomplish whatever your goal is for that day exercise or whatever, um, then just go to normal. That's what yeah. he would say. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Have you ever tried to just nasal breathe when you're swimming? It's not gonna work. I can't because
1: yeah. I have a mask on, but um, <laughs> right. I can I can exhale. Through that was my not nose. a setup by the way. <laughs> I can exhale through my nose. With my mask on, it's what it, that's the, what's so great about my swim mask is you can still breathe through your nose mm-hmm. in this particular swim mask. Thank you for only bringing it in up. the exhale version though. But normally I, I inhale through the mouth and exhale. Yeah. But even if I was in a pool with goggles, um, I, I don't know that I would I- inhale through my nose. I've never really mm-hmm. tried it. No. Mm-hmm.
0: There is a you know I, there is a thing that happens with your nervous system though. Yeah. Through and I should know more about this. Than I do, so I feel like I'm not really satisfying Scott's inquiry. Scott, I got a book
1: for you. It's called How to Be Idle, <laughs> A Loafer's Manifesto. Don't worry
0: about nasal breathing. Just lie down and do nothing. When you're lying down, you can should nasal you be breathe. nasal breathing when you're lying down <laughs> on your parents' <laughs> let me check, porch? Let me check. Let me check.
1: Chapter eight PM smoking.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not helpful. <laughs> all right. I think we're, you know, needing to land this prop plane. All right. This seaplane. Let's do it. All right. Um, I feel bad for Scott. I feel like I didn't answer this question very no, well.
1: No, I mean, we, a- we gave him some, you know, Nicholas yeah. Ramirez. I
0: mean, the truth is, like, wisdom. you know, I could have done a bunch of research and said, here's what you should do and all this kind of stuff. The, the, the honest truth is, like, I don't really think about this that much. Okay. When I do, I'll like, OK, I'll do kind of like warm-up exercises, and, I'll, and I do try to do this at night and all the like, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. And maybe, if we get anything out of this, it's Scott reminding me that perhaps I should focus on this for myself a little bit more. So
1: Or maybe Scott. your answer is just mouth breathe. Who cares? It's not really that important.: <laughs> yeah.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Read James Nestor's book, "Breath." I have not read it yet, have you read it? No, I haven't. Have you had had him on? No, I haven't. I should have him on though. Yeah. Maybe that's what this is about. Maybe. This will prompt me to reach out to him. I think that would be a great podcast actually. Yeah. Cool. All right, we did it. We're done. How do you feel? I feel good, man. I feel feel good too. I feel good, man. You feel good, man. You're not, but you're not banking those NFTs like Matt Fury. I don't think I'm gonna get complaints
1: when people ask me at the end, when you ask me how I'm doing, I always say I feel good like at Uh first, Now I've changed my intro. I gotta work on my outro.
0: Well, we'll see what you come up with next time. Yes. All right, my friend. (laughs) Follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. Leave us a message if you want your question. Ineffectively yes. answered. Please, that. please, uh, we,
1: we, we, we would love more questions. So yeah, four two four
0: two three five four six two six. 235 4626 Check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com to dive into everything we talked about today. Please make sure that you subscribe to the show on YouTube, on Spotify and Apple on all the places it really helps us out. Leave a comment, share it with your friends and on social media and uh, that's it. Let's thank everybody who helped put on today's show. We got Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production, show notes, interstitial music, all the things. Blake Curtis for videoing the show. We got Dan Drake, our newest member of the team who's helping us out on the video side, creating new content and all kinds of cool stuff. We got Jessica Miranda for graphics. We have Georgia Whaley for copywriting. We have AJ also working with us on video stuff and graphics and all kinds of cool stuff. Grayson Wilder for portraits today, DK for advertiser relationships, theme music as always by Tyler Trapper and Harry. Adam put the Oculus back on, oh. he's left the building. Uh, Adam, has, Adam has left the building. I'm in a new dimension. <laughs> you are, we'll see you in Ready Player One. Thanks for the love you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another awesome episode, peace plants. Thank